That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Several years ago, I was on the field at Autzen Stadium at the end of an Oregon football game when fans at Autzen Stadium did a cool thing. They started jumping over the railing. And I remember smiling at it, and I had walked out onto the field because with about five minutes to go in the game, media in the press box are allowed to come down the aisles. You may see it if you're there. And stand on the sideline for the final five minutes of the game. And I happen to be on the sideline. The game ends. I was not far from Phil Knight, Nike co-founder, Uncle Phil. He had to be late 70s at that time. He's 85 now. But I remember the Oregon fans coming over the railing, and I remember it being a night game. And I cannot remember the occasion. I don't know if it was a Civil War I don't know if it was a win over Washington. I don't know if it was a upset win or not. But fans jumped over the railings and started to run on the field. I stood in the middle of the field because I didn't quite know what to do as the Oregon fans were sprinting past me. And now, granted, I've been in that scenario. I've been in that scenario at Stanford. I've been in that scenario at Oregon State. I've been in that scenario uh, at Washington State when Washington State upset Oregon one year. Uh, I've been in that scenario, but this one was different because I had Phil Knight next to me. And I wasn't worried for me, but I was kind of wondering, like, you know, there's no security guard escorting Phil Knight onto the field. I kind of thought, what if some Oregon fan blindsides Phil Knight on the field? Knocks him down, knocks him silly. Knight had a smile on his face, too, so I don't know if he would have minded. But I was kind of watching the scene, and I ended up standing there next to Knight as the fans were going past us. And I thought to myself, gosh, really cool to see this, but also a little bit alarming to be in the middle of all that, to be in the middle of that fray at the end of a game. We saw fans storm the court, of course, over the weekend as Wake Forest beat Duke. Decide for yourself if the Wake Forest fans should have even stormed the court. Do you storm the court if your team is a favorite? Do you storm the court if they beat Duke? I don't know. Discuss. But uh, obviously a lot has come out of this as, uh, you know, Duke's coach is not happy. He's got an injured player. Uh, You had Wake Forest fans who were spilling onto the court before regulation time had run out. Um, You had a whole bunch of uh, tentacles to this discussion about whether or not we have jumped the shark as it pertains to rushing the court. Jim Beheim, uh speaking out, longtime Syracuse coach, talked about the problems with court storming and stopping court storming. Well, you put 100, 200 police officers there, you could do it. But, 
you know, I mean, I'm very sympathetic. I hope Kyle, I love Kyle Filipowski. I hope he's all right. I really do. But in all the years of all the court stormings I've seen, and, you know, I'm kind of old, so it's probably a couple hundred, right? I've never seen anybody get hurt. I mean, that's, that's the first thing everybody's talked about since this happened. Mm-hmm. Player safety, players this. And I've never seen anybody get hurt. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't get hurt. Uh, and you got Kyle Filipowski, who's got, you know, an apparent injury to his knee that occurred during the court storming incident after the loss on Saturday. Um, Bayheim saying you could have 100, 200 uh, security staffers there. I've seen fewer than that at NBA games keep the crowd back. I've also seen the public address announcer, if they start to sense an issue like that, warn the crowd to stay off the court and tell the end of regulation. And frankly, I've seen it done at football stadiums where they'll tell the fans, hey, you can storm the field, but let's make sure we get the players safely off the field. I want to know where you stand on this, and I think it's that it has a variety of tentacles. Do you think that court storming and field storming should be a thing of the past? Should it no longer happen? Is it too dangerous? Is it passe? Has it jumped the shark? You tell me, 503-417-7575. Is there a safe way that you can storm the court, storm the field, allow kids to be kids, and uh, let the fun and the joy that people have in watching sports exist while also making sure the players get off the court? Or is this much ado about nothing? With Kyle Filipowski and Caitlin Clark at Iowa being the you know high-profile cases that are getting a lot of attention, but do you think this sort of polices itself? I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575 is the number. Jay Billis weighed in as well. Here's his take. The administrators will tell you that uh, security experts tell them that it's not, it's not a good idea to try to stop the court storming, that that could cause more problems than it would solve. But you don't have to stop the court storming. One time, all you have to do is once they're on the court, don't let them off. Just just say you're all detained and give them all citations or arrest them if you want to. And then court stormings will stop the next day. Um, there's no accountability for this. It, it, the fans feel like it's an entitlement and the universities like it. And the truth is we like it. Now, one last thing on this. Years ago, when, when fans would run out on the field or on the court during a game, it was, it was network policy not to show that because we didn't want to encourage it. So what does that say about the way we in the media use these images now? We, we can't deny that we encourage it, or at least tacitly approve of it. And uh, everybody has to accept some responsibility for this. It, I don't think it's the right thing to allow this, but I know that it's going to continue. This is not going to stop. Now, security experts will tell you that the staffers that are contracted and wearing those yellow jackets or wearing those blue jackets and they're situated at the games that are third-party contractors are, are often told not to tackle fans. They're told, hey, uh, you know, there's litigation here. You're here to uh, prevent injury and tackling some fan who's jumping the railing or storming the court is not going to hold back the tide and you're probably going to maybe hurt somebody or uh, it results in a lawsuit. But I also have seen teams do it right. I've seen PA announcers and PA uh, public address uh, folks at basketball stadiums and football stadiums warn fans that entering the court of play um, can result in a ban from the arena. I've seen at uh, NBA games 
uh, the ushers hold up a rope, just uh, basically telling fans, hey, you need to step back. They'll take the rope down at some point. But I think you have to do something if you're in the arena and you're the security staff, even if it is a uh, flimsy rope that you're hanging and holding onto that will maybe just slow the crowd a little bit. Because to me, the court storming's not the issue. The issue is when you're court storming and players are getting caught in that fray. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I want to hear from you. Tell me what you think about this. Let's start with Chad in Portland. Chad, lead us off. What do you got? Hey, what's up, John? Love your show, man. And I listen every chance I get. And, man, you got a couple of dookies on there. You got Jay, and now you're talking about Filipowski. And I think that, you know, you know, I don't want him to be injured. I don't want any player to be injured. And I think that what happened to him was wrong, and the students should have been more careful. And But to a certain degree, he was kind of, you know, lollygagging, kind of not – protecting himself i think he could have protected himself more run off the court not saying it's his fault at all but i don't think that we can just give a bunch of students tickets and solve this problem i don't really know how you can stop it i think there's kind of a a couple of different things that you could do kind of you know by educating the students like maybe I don't know, maybe having announcements beforehand. You know, when it's a big win like that, kids are just excited, fans are excited, they're going to storm the court, and I don't know how much you can stop it. And it's really just a part of the culture of, you know, winning and having a big win like that. So I I think that you can't stop it, but you can make things better for both the students and the athletes by having them just both be cognizant of what's about to happen because – you know, when I watch that film, I see Filipowski just slowly walking over his head down. I'm sure he was upset of losing, but you know that a bunch of thousands of fans are going to be running out because of how exciting that is for him. So, anyways, yeah. I'll take it offline. Thanks for your time, John. Yeah, I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Hey, by the way, Phil Knight turned 86 uh, over the weekend, I guess. And, uh, you know, it made me think, what do you get the guy who has it all? Uh, a friend of mine, Jeff, says, get him an NBA team. How about the Trailblazers? Uh, I want your calls, 503-417-7575, because one of the things I love about sports is the emotion, the authenticity, the reaction of the crowd. The stadium wasn't the same during the pandemic without you in it. I went to games. I walked into the stadiums. They put up cardboard cutouts. They piped in sound. It was not the same without you there. It also isn't the same without that genuine reaction from students. And I think students in particular sort of personify the crowd and put a face on the crowd. And, you know, after all, it is still a college campus with students being given prime seating at basketball and football events. And so I, I hesitate to say that students shouldn't storm the court. I also don't agree with Jay Billis that ESPN has, you know, sort of glorified this behavior. Now, maybe they put it on Sports Center. Maybe they put it on TV, but I saw court storming when they weren't doing that, and and students still stormed the court. I think part of the bigger part of the problem is that in a lot of basketball arenas and a lot of football stadiums, they are getting more and more premium seating, more and more student seating, closer and closer to the court. There's almost no buffer at you know NCAA games, NBA games, although they have tried to do more in this season with the NBA moving the crowd back because they had some incidents when players were leaving the court and they were having negative interactions with fans. But I think we're seeing more of this hostility and more of this 
human interaction between fans and players than ever because they're closer in proximity than ever. And let's face it, players, fans, uh, there's been a loss of civility in our society and culture as well because I also think if you're a fan who's storming the court after a Wake Forest victory, what you have to be mindful of is running into players. I didn't like it either two football seasons ago when Oregon's DJ Johnson was leaving the field at Research Stadium. Remember, the Beavers came back, upset the Ducks, and he ends up throwing a punch at a student that was caught on camera. It became a negative story in the wake of that game. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. Let's go to Mike in Klamath Falls. Mike, appreciate you. Hi there. I'm old, and I was there when the Beavers beat Bill Walton's UCLA team, and the joy that was expressed when we jumped over the rail and down onto the court was indescribable, and it was something that college kids shouldn't have to miss. And then my daughter went there, and we were there when Steve Jackson was the best running back maybe ever at Oregon State, and we stormed the field. And it's really cool, especially with the team that doesn't have that much success. So I think it's worthwhile, and you just need to put uh, precautions in place to make sure no one gets hurt. Yeah, I think you're going to see some reaction to this. I don't like the idea of punishing the home team by saying, hey, we're going to, uh, if you don't control the crowd and you're the home team, uh, we're going to uh, subsequently give you a technical foul for the next game or, or even a fine. But I do think additional security for big games, that's a no-brainer, right? I also think... Um, you know, the Blazers, ushers, I've seen them hold the rope up, and I've often thought to myself, they hold up a, this little yellow rope at the end of the game, and it helps the players get from the court into the locker room. They hold this yellow rope like like it's magical. And in the end, I'm left thinking, it's just a rope. It's just It creates a psychological barrier between the fans and the players that works in a lot of ways. And all you really need here, like I'm, not, I'm okay with you being on the court, I'm not okay with you being on the court while there's players on the court. So how do we give the players 30 to 60 seconds to get off to the side while people are coming onto the court? That becomes the issue. Football, less of an issue, right? Because it takes time to get over the railing. Often there's a drop. You've seen some students who will drop and find out uh, very uh, harshly that it's like 7 to 10 or 12 feet dropping from the from the seats down onto the field. I've seen that more than once, landing on top of each other, causing injuries. But I also think uh, in football there's a further distance. Talking about a bigger playing surface doesn't cause quite the problems. Kevin's in Portland. Kevin, what's on your mind? Yeah, Hey, John. Um, I think one of the big issues that you kind of hit on here is the, the loss of civility with it. I mean, you look earlier in the year, at, I believe it was Notre Dame at with SD, and Caleb Williams had that guy that came up to him, and everyone's trying to get their likes for their Instagram and everything. I think that's where the big problem is. You look back. I mean, you know, not that many years ago, people would be storming the court and, you know, we didn't have as many issues popping up where people are getting hit and um, the, that Caitlin Clark in Iowa potentially getting hurt and she's a, you know, marquee player. So, like you're talking about, just finding a way to, to slow it down and really make sure that the safety of the players and fans all together are being brought. And, I, I mean, I don't know how you police a bunch of kids going crazy when they're all hyped up and trying to get all their likes on social media, but... There's definitely a disconnect that needs to be addressed and fixed in order to allow this to keep happening. Otherwise, I mean, you're just going to end up with 
like people are talking about, you're going to get tickets or kids are going to start getting expelled, and that's the end of that. Yeah, you start, you can't, and the other thing is, I, I think you can threaten to ban students or raise the idea misconduct can result in a lifetime ban from the arena. Like, a reminder like that during the final timeout, um, you know, is enough, but I don't know if that's necessarily what you want to be doing during the final timeout of a college basketball game. Uh, you know, having to tisk tisk remind the kids not to run on the court, don't hurt anybody. Um, the loss of civility, it's been on my mind. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen it in a vari- manifest in a variety of ways with fans, fan behavior at stadiums, fighting at NFL stadiums, uh, interactions between players, things that are said, social media. I, I do think there's been a deterioration of the ecosystem in general. But I'm mostly focused on, okay, how can we keep something that is genuine and authentic and joyful storming the court and also defend against players getting caught in the middle of that because, yeah, how far away are we from an incident where a player gets seriously hurt? And I've heard people say in the wake of this, they should be banned. It should be over. We should not have to have players and fans running on the court. But I don't want to take away the fan experience because I got to tell you, like I said, it wasn't the same without fans. Why should we remove fans and penalize fans and tell them, hey, pipe down, don't be so excited about your team winning the game? Stephen Vaughn, back in the seat today. I got to know where you stand on this before I go to break. Yeah, I. here's my thing about it, John. This is what makes college sports great is the emotion, the pageantry, the fact that fans do run on the field and do run on the court. I think this is a lot to do about nothing. I think the fact that it was a white dude from Duke that got hurt, I think that's the biggest problem. I think that's why people are really freaking out about it with Jay Billis, freaking out about it. If it was – there's been numerous times uh, back in 2014, New Mexico State, they got, in a, they got in a fight with the crowd after a game. Nobody talked about it. Like we talked about, oh, should fans storm the court and that's it. But we're starting this huge controversy because it's Duke, because it's Kyle Filipowski and it's it's the white stereotype at player at Duke. Like that happens all the time. Like I just think we're we're this is what we do in college basketball. We don't watch the product. Something happen like this happens, and this is what we talk about. We're not actually talking about the actual game. So I don't have a problem with what happened. This doesn't happen very often. I would I love your idea of just trying to do something right. Whether it is a rope, whether th- th- there needs to be better. Wake Forest has to be better in this situation for sure. I'm not saying they did a great job. Security didn't do a good job, but I can't I can't advocate taking the court storming out of the game. Like that's what makes college basketball unique i've already do you think it's enough to make an announcement at you know halftime saying hey fans will be allowed onto the court after the game but we respect you know we ask that you respectfully allow 60 seconds for the wake forest players to get to the locker room is is that asking too much or even if you know the rope you're going to let it go you're not really going to hold the rope and try to hold people back if people try to run through it they run through it but i think it would keep some of those fans back, and I think additional security would cause a little bit of a pause because that's all you need. Agreed. It can be, you know, it can be, hey, take the court, it's yours. But in, there needs to be, you know, there was still time on the clock. Like Filipowski's trying to walk off the court, and people are saying he took his time. There was still time on the clock when the fans, the first Wake fans, hit the court. Yeah, I, th- I both, I'm with you. There needs to be some, like I said, Wake Forest needs to be better, and they need to have better security. I do think the rope thing would help, like just the visual of it, like, hey, stay off the court because you know college kids are going to be dumb and they're going to do stupid things and they're going to run on the court anyways. But I, I just, I can't advocate for taking it out of the game, like because of this one situation. There's so many times where 
it hasn't been bad. And even this, I don't, I don't think it's going to end up being that bad. Filipowski is still going to play. He's still going to be, you know, on the court and playing in their in their next couple of games. I hope so, right? Like, I don't think it's a serious injury. So, I, I, I just, I, I don't. I've already seen college football trying to turn into a mini NFL, and I don't think that's a good idea because on the product on the field, it's not a good product like the NFL. The fact that it's about pageantry and emotion and the, it's your alma mater and you care, you care more about it. That's what makes college football great. And that's the same thing with college basketball. People care about it more than their NBA teams because it's not professional. It's these kids playing for the pride of their school and people went to this school. So I don't want to lose that. I don't want to make it another mini NBA where we can't have court storming because it's too emotional. The fans are too crazy. No, this is what makes college basketball good. This is what makes college basketball fun and able to watch when Wake Forest can beat Duke. So I don't want it to go away. It's definitely a problem that Wake Forest's security had, and there needs to be buffing that up a little bit. I feel like, I like the rope idea is great, but we gotta we we can't let it go away. Like this is what college basketball and college sports is made off of. We'll talk more about this later in the show. Ryan Divish going to join us from spring training, where they're seeing things they've never seen before on baseball diamonds. Leave it here. If you're not reading Ryan Divish in the Seattle Times. You're not reading the best baseball writing on the West Coast. He had a great piece the other day, which he sort of blended the frustrations of Mariners fans and Mariners players into a feature about the Mariners manager. It's not an easy thing to do. And he did it deftly and in a way that, like, you know, I read a lot, and it's one of those things I read start to finish. Ryan Divish joining us now. From the desert. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm uh, sitting in I-10 traffic. Adam Jude is riding with me. He's been down here for a week helping me out. So we're just rolling along. And it is 77 here, but it's overcast. So we don't have the sun, but it was 77 today. How do you decide who drives between you and, and uh, Jude? <clears throat> well, I got this huge truck for some reason on my rental car. I'm not letting Adam drive. He drives like a Tesla. I Come on. Say, I wouldn't expect him to I love it. Um, Divish, uh, give me an idea. Like, you know, you. I, what I love about that piece that you that you did on uh, as a profile of the manager is you kind of, you know, very early in the piece you introduced the frustrations that players have, the the frustrations that man, that uh, fans had in the off season. Um, I thought that was really smart. Why did you want to do that in in sort of writing that piece uh, entering spring? <laughs> Um, I think part of it, the big part was is that Scott Service, as the manager, recognized that the frustrations that the fans held and it were the same that his players were holding and that it was going to be detrimental to the club moving forward if he didn't address it. Like, you know, at the end of last season, Cal Raleigh came out and just said that their roster wasn't good enough, that they didn't have enough talent, and that the team that they had not got knocked them out the Texas Rangers had done more to get better, and the Mariners hadn't. And, you know, Raleigh was very critical, and then the next day kind of apologized for some of those comments, but his teammates, J.P. Crawford, Ty France, Logan Gilbert, all stuck by him. And I think Scott Service has been doing this a long time, and he really does have that dad vibe, and he's worked really hard to have a, a clubhouse where the players play for each other, and he didn't want the the group of those players being bonded over bitterness towards the front office or towards the franchise. And so he, he decided, like, you know, instead of just letting these guys sit in the dark and wonder why they're doing what they're doing and having to read it 
secondhand on social media or from what I'm writing, you know, he, he took it upon himself to talk to him. I mean, in this day and age of text messaging and, and you know, passive aggressiveness and all this other stuff, he sat down for conversations. I mean, he wanted to do them all in person. Some of it they had to do on the phone, but even then, like, most of it was done in person, like grown-up conversations about important things that, you know, we don't do as a society very much anymore. And I thought it was pretty refreshing. You know, the, the story itself was arduous. When you don't write, like, features all off-season, you're mostly writing analysis and stuff, it's harder to write that. I mean, it was supposed to be about 2,700, 25 to 2,700 words, and I think my first draft was 3,700, and it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was like Sanskrit. Like, I, I I didn't even want Adam or – I didn't really want Adam or even Larry Stone, who's retired, but still reads him. Like, I didn't want him to read it because it was just – I was repeating myself, and I was just like – you know, there's a flow and a rhythm, and, like, I was listening to every kind of music I have. Like, I'll go Pearl Jam or Oasis. I like a lot of this Texas country. I was trying every sad song I could think of, and nothing was working. And a credit to my new editor, Sean, who showed a lot of patience and kind of helped me rethink some stuff and helped me tighten it up. Of course, though, I still left some stuff on the – I had to cut some stuff that I felt like I wanted to get in there. There was a lot of great comments. The Mariners players that I talked to, those leaders, they're leaders for a reason, and they're super open. So they made that part of it, the reporting part, very easy. Last season, uh, payroll about 140 million ending ending payroll. Um, how how do you compete in in Major League Baseball with teams that are spending way beyond that? You you have to be super smart, and you can't make mistakes. And what happened last year is the Mariners made mistakes in some of their off-season acquisitions, the few that they made, you know, the few guys that they signed because they didn't have much payroll last year. Colton Wong and A.J. Pollock didn't work. You know, when you only have a finite amount of dollars and you invest them in bad players, you know, it doesn't work. And, I mean, I think the Mariners know that they're never going to be the Dodgers or the Yankees in terms of payroll. They did the rebuild a few years ago, and they realized that for them to be sustainably successful, it starts with a pretty simple thing, being really good at pitching. And they brought in analysts and coaches, and then they drafted the right pitchers. So you build up, and you have a starting rotation with three guys that are among the top ten in the American League and Cy Young odds, you know, and two young kids, and then you figure out how to build a bullpen and all of a sudden, that, that makes you competitive. It's kind of like, you know, it's like being really good at defense or, you know, those kinds of things. Like a, a team in basketball that's consistently really good at defense, you're going to be in most games. Yeah, you might not shoot well every night, but if you, if you play defense, you're going to be in most games. That's the way the Mariners look at it. If they pitch well enough, they can hold a team to one or zero or two. Maybe they can scratch out three, which is harder than you think for them, but – that's how they've been able to do it. That's how they've been able to compete is be smarter. You know, when you do invest, don't make mistakes. When you develop, when you draft and develop, don't make mistakes. Now, they're not going to be perfect by any means, but, you know, they're, they're a group of Luis Castillo and Logan Gilbert, George Kirby, and then the two kids, Bryce Miller and Brian Wu. I mean, that's, you know, that's how you win. You have a starting rotation that's good. They can strike people out, and, you know, they take the ball every fifth day.
Ryan Divish, Seattle Times, with us. Uh, the Mar- the Mariners uh, are starting play. Julio Rodriguez has been out with a hand injury. How concerned should Mariners fans be? Well, Mariners fans are going to think the worst, um, usually. But I don't think they should be very concerned. He was actually thinking of that today. But like, Don, you played baseball. You know how your hands get beat up. Julio did a lot of work this offseason, wanted to refine some things to be more consistent, to, you know, strike out less. And he put a lot of time in the cage and his hands are beat up. You know, take 500 swings a day, hard as he swings it, you know, your hands get tired. And he's had a history of hand injuries before. You know, he's broken his left hand once already, broke the left wrist. So, I mean, that predisposes you to getting some soreness in there. And uh, I think that's it. I, I'm not concerned. I mean, if he's swinging today, I assume he'll probably play by Thursday or Friday at the, the latest. Right. And the uniforms have become a hot topic um, what are the players saying about the new uniforms? So they, most of them won't say anything on the record. I don't know if they've been told not to. Um, off the record, they most of them are not fit for print. Um, <laughs> but like, they're the white pants are the worst because they're so thin, and you, you just kind of see through, you know. And if you're, you know, when your nickname is the big dumper like Cal Raleigh, and you're wearing those pants. You know, that's just not going to be a look you want. So I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what Nike was doing. The Nike uniforms in general since they've crossed over have been kind of a disaster. But these ones have all the feel of like a Canadian slow-pitch softball team. You know, lettering looks funny, everything like that. It's just not It's not good. You know, the City Connect uniforms, everything about it. But, like, you know, it's just, it's just kind of low-quality look to it. You know, like the... The jerseys with the way the lettering is now, it looks like it looks like one of those fake jerseys you buy off the vendors outside the stadium or you see in a Ross dress <laughs> class. No, it's not a real jersey. So, But you know Major League Baseball. What's the reaction going to be? Are they going to try to save face? Will they recall the pants? Uh, will they do a reset at the All-Star break? I mean, it's a lot of jerseys. Yeah, I mean, well, like the Mariners didn't even have enough pants to start with, so they're wearing last year's pants. I told one guy, I go, you better hang on to those. Those are pretty valuable, <laughs> you know, because, like, they're better quality. So I, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, you know, it, it is. It's like the production, the value of that. These four minor leaguers are who, who's going to get all these pants now. You know, like, oh, yeah, here you go. You got to take the hand-me-downs, you know. I think, uh, I think they'll probably make some adjustments, but right now they can't. And the jerseys are what they are because they're, they're already selling this version of the jerseys with the smaller lettering and everything like that. So I think that's what they they are what they are at least for the year. But I guess you know switch it up. And again, to me, I never understood the buying of the jersey culture, anyways, for men over twenty. So you know, I guess it's a way to make money for teams if they switch back to the old jersey or something else. But they they don't look right. They look a little odd. You know, players don't like it. They'll adjust. But the one thing is, is like all I could think about. You know, and I saw the meme, but like the. The, the cotton uniforms on Seinfeld when Costanza made them, and then they shrunk and they couldn't play. I mean, that's you know, I, I can't have when your when your situation is being compared to something that memorable that George Costanza did on Seinfeld. Probably not a good thing. Well put, Seattle Times uh, baseball writer Ryan Divish, uh, fantastic writer. Uh, if you're not following him already, you'd need to uh, give me a guy you're watching in the spring that Mariners fans can get excited about. Um, well, 
we just watched their their top prospect, Cole Young, hit a double today. Um, he's, I think he's 19 years old, maybe 20. And he's a uh, first-round pick, high school kid. I mean, like, he could be in the big leagues by the end of this year. If he played really well, he'll be in the big leagues at some point next year. He's 20 years old, and he's going to go play. He'll be in double-A by the end of the year. If he doesn't, you know, he'll start Everett. And um, just one of those guys that, like, it's not fair that his swing looks that normal. You know, the left-handed guy that just compact, tight swing, and uh, everything he does is right. But, like, what they love is that he has a better understanding of the strike zone and what he wants to do at the plate and his approach than a lot of veterans do. And that just excites them. Like, today he struck out off a tough lefty, kind of a funky-looking lefty. You can tell he just couldn't believe he struck out. Next time up, he comes up off another tough lefty, hits the ball 400 feet to the wall, and drives in the only two runs of the game. So I, I've been pretty excited watching him. I mean, I think that's it's always entertaining for me. And then I, I've, I've enjoyed watching um, uh, Ty France a little bit, just seeing kind of the work he did at driveline this year. You know, I think I like Ty. So seeing a player that kind of recognizes deficiencies, recognizes that he has to do more than he's done in the past, that's always kind of cool to see because, like, there are a lot of players that I've covered over the years that never recognized it and wasted talent and lost years because they just didn't put in the time. And the guy that saw it come in and put in the time, and it's always kind of cool to see that kind of growth. Give us an idea because most of our listeners will not get to go to a spring training, let alone cover it. Just kind of the pace, the rhythm of your day. Uh, what it's like to be there outside of the ballparks and in the baseball as you're around town? Uh, it's a, well, I mean, I was in Montana for most of the offseason. I left, it was nine degrees, and it was about minus three with the wind chill. I got here, it was 75. So that's a little shock. But it's just, there's a laid back vibe to it. Um, for people that want to get close to the players, get an autograph, see them up close, see them take BP, there's nothing better. It's a kid's dream. You know, like, they can run around and, you know, talk to these guys, get their pictures taken with them. They're right there. You know, you can see you're standing closer than you'll ever stand close to them at a stadium or see them at a stadium. And with this group of players, the Mariners specific, like, they're they're all younger. They're all nice guys. They get it. I mean, like, it's, it's just a kind of a cool vibe. I know, like, uh, you know, Adam brought his son down. He's out there playing catch. He's Logan Gilbert walked by or George Kirby. Like, it's, you know, it's kind of cool for them. And I think, you know, for the adult fans, too, it's just like it's a it's a better vibe. You know, you come down, you get sunshine, you see the players, you get to see them work. And I think that's one thing for me. You know, my girlfriend's son is, is 15. He's a really good baseball player in Legion. He thought he worked hard. And I took him into the indoor cages and showed those showed him how those guys hit and how they hit off a tee. He got an appreciation for what these guys do. Like, they just don't throw their glove on the field. You know, they put in time. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people recognize when they get out there. But I, it is just a good vibe. It's a laid-back vibe. You go to the game, the sun's out, you know, have a beer in the sunshine and, and, and just relax, you know. And, and it's also fun seeing some of the younger kids out there playing because, again, they're going to go to the minor leagues. You're going to hear about them. You might see some video clips on Twitter. But you're not going to see them for a year or two, so it's always good to kind of see them early and see what they're like. Brian Divish, before I let you go, um, you know, DiMaggio hitting 56 straight. 
Cal Ripken, 2,632 games. Pete Rose, more hits than anybody. What's the most unbreakable record in baseball? Or Cy Young's win total? What's the most unbreakable record? It'll be Cal Ripken's record because they don't, players don't do that anymore. Like, you know, Adriano Suarez played 161 games last year and almost to the detriment that he played that many. You know, like, I don't think we'll ever see anybody play that much because they do load management with these guys. You know, they're not going to play them every day. I don't, I mean, all those that you mentioned, I we're never going to probably see another 300 win pitcher again. Like, the Hall of Fame metric. That you adjust. I mean, I know Verlander could ostensibly do it, but I don't think he's going to pitch that long. But like, yeah. they're not going to be another 300 win pitcher. They don't, you know, that it's just not going to be that way. I mean, we'll see 3,000 hits, we'll see 500 home runs, but 300 wins from a pitcher, I don't think we'll ever see that again. Ryan Divish, you drive safely in that pickup truck, and I uh, imagine you I, and uh, you and Jude have your shirts off and the radio on, and you're buzzing down the ten. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're thinking of going to Thelma and Louise here eventually, you know, <laughs> drive off the cliff and, you know, start a band or something instead. I love it. Thank you for joining us. You guys have fun down there. Yep. Love you, John. All right, take care. There they go. Ryan Divish and Adam Jude riding shotgun. I want to ask that next. The most unbreakable records in sports. Somebody asked me that today. In my Monday mailbag, they asked me about LeBron James, who's going to finish above 40,000 points for his career. He will pass 40,000 points. He'll probably end up somewhere between about forty-two to 44,000 points in his career. Kareem's second, 38 and change. But what, what record in sports is the most unbreakable? Will anyone get to where LeBron is? Kevin Durant, second among active players, Trails LeBron by way too many points. Yeah, I believe he has 23,000, 24,000 points. He'll never get there. Um, Cy Young won 511 games in baseball. Pete Rose, more hits than anybody. Cal Ripken, 2,600-plus consecutive games played. DiMaggio hitting 56 straight. What's the most unbreakable record in sports in your mind? 503-417-7575. Well, I do a Monday mailbag every week at johnconzano.com, and I got a great question in today's mailbag about LeBron James and his record. He's got the record, right? It's all-time NBA leading scorer. He's got the record and counting. Uh, as uh, you know, you look at uh, the NBA's all-time scorers, we saw him pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, for most points of all time, and I started thinking about unbreakable records. What is truly unbreakable? Now, LeBron is nearing 40,000 points. Would that be an unbreakable record? More unbreakable than Cal Ripken Jr. playing in 2,632 consecutive games? More unbreakable than Joe DiMaggio hitting in 56 straight? More unbreakable than Emmett Smith's uh, rushing total? 18,355 yards? Or Jerry Rice? all-time leading receiver, 22,895 yards. What's the most unbreakable record in sports in your mind? Uh, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak is amazing. When you consider that, you know, I was looking back at Ted Williams, the last player to hit 400, hit 406. Um, Ted Williams in his career never batted in more than 30 games consecutively. And... 
you know, that doesn't get him in the top 100 for hitting streaks. And yet he hit 406. DiMaggio not only had a 56-game hitting streak, uh, in the minor leagues, in the PCL, DiMaggio hit 61 straight games. He was just a guy who put the bat on the ball, rarely struck out, and hit line drives. Um, will that ever be accomplished again? I don't think so with pitching. I also know that Cy Young's career win total, 511, nobody's touching that. Nobody's pitching like that anymore. 503-417-7575, most unbreakable record in sports. We'll go to Turk, who's joining us from lovely San Jose, California. Turk, what's up, man? John Ballgame, how you doing? I'm well. Hey, uh, unbreakable. Okay, we got to talk about Ricky Henderson. 1,406 okay. stolen bases in his career, 180 in one season in 1980, or 1992. Yep. Nowadays, it would take you 10 years to even come close to 180 in a lifetime. A good no point. way anyone is ever going to break that record. That's a good point. It's not like you're going to see so much. Yeah, they, just the way the game has changed, though, and and I think like you know I said today like I'm not going to say LeBron's record's never going to get beat because some young player is going to come into the league someday in a league that you see increased scoring every season. The scoring's going up in the NBA. The latest trend about 115 points per hundred possessions is at an all time high right now. And you're going to see more scoring. You're going to see somebody with longevity. But, you know, yeah, I don't want to say that it's unbreakable. But Ricky Henderson at 1406. Yeah, second all-time Lou Brock, 938. Um, you're not going to see, guys aren't running like that anymore. Thanks, Turk, for the call. Steven, you got an unbreakable record? Yeah, I, I was looking up some of these. I, the Cy Young is a good one, but I also think this one's even more breakable by Cy Young. 749 career complete games. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, like like uh, last season, manager gets arrested. That, yeah, that's there, the headline. There was uh, in 2022. There was 36 complete games in all of baseball. So yeah. I, I think 749 is uh, out of there. I, I think like those ones are just kind of you know silly. I think one of them that is somewhat uh, not recent, but uh, you know in in the time frame that we remember, Wayne Gretzky's career assists. I think that's one for me. Uh, 1963 is the amount of assists. Uh, and there's always that stat of if you took a, if he never scored a goal in his career, he'd still lead the NHL in total points just on his assists. Like I think that one would never will never be touched, and it just that doesn't matter how the game is played. Like that is just way more assists than anybody gets. So I, I think like Gretzky's assists would be yeah. And he had ninety he had ninety two goals in the nineteen eighty one eighty two season uh, on only three hundred sixty nine shots. So about twenty five percent of the time he scored. He had ten hat tricks in the season. Um, nobody has come close to 92 goals uh, since you know, and since he did it in 81, 82. I want you to tell me the most unbreakable records in sports. What are they? You can tweet at me at John Canzano BFT if you'd like to do it on Twitter. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, you know how everybody was uh, complaining about stolen signs? The NCAA Rules Committee is proposing helmet comms legislation this week. 
Steve Shaw, who's the coordinator of officials for the NCAA, uh, told CBS that this is a, there's a big push at the FBS level to get 130 schools up to speed with helmet communication. They want a single unified solution, start to finish. Schools can determine, conferences can determine how big of a priority this is. But uh, Shaw said that you know this is the biggest uniform push for any rule change. Called it unprecedented that all 10 FBS conferences are trying to get helmet communications approved for this season. Now, people will all think it was generated because of the Michigan scandal and the current events, but it was not. Shaw told CBS it's been on the docket for years. He said, I don't know in year one if we're going to be able to eliminate signaling, but with cooperation from the conferences, this is now potentially more doable. It's your big splash than the one thing you need to know. You're not going to see people giving signals as often on the sideline, going to more of an NFL model with helmet communications between the coach and the quarterback being a thing. I think this is great. I think it alleviates a big problem. I have wondered with the technology that we have, the ability to have it in the NFL, the ability for um, coaches to communicate and uh, you know circumvent any hint of impropriety when it comes to signal stealing. This is an overdue change. And, and least of all, the money involved in college athletics. Think about how a, how big of a no-brainer it is to to be able to put the head coach into communication with his quarterback on the field and alleviate a whole bunch of problems and a whole cloud of uncertainty. This is a great move by the NCAA, and if the Rules Committee gets this done, bravo. All right, coming up, hour number two, we're going to pivot a little bit. Ethan Strauss from the House of Strauss is going to be with us to talk about NBA, why he thinks uniforms should all be uniform, and more. Leave it here. I like smart writing. Ethan Strauss is a smart writer. Houseofstrauss.com does a fantastic job there. Blending culture, sports together. He's the anti-media media guy. Great on the NBA. Great on pop culture and trends. Smart stuff. In the last week or two, He's written about uniforms and why uniforms need to be uniform. He's written about uh, the NBA, Bluey, the cartoon, and why it's good. Matt Areza, the punter. Remember the punter? Bills and Eagles didn't have the PR stomach for it. Kansas City Chiefs appear that to, to very much have the stomach for it. Great punter. Ethan Strauss joining us. Houseofstrauss.com is the website. That's where you can read them. I'll get to Bluey. I want to get there because I have kids and I, I'm with you on it. But let's start with the uniforms. Everybody's talking about it. It's not good for Major League Baseball that this is a problem. Ethan, what do you make of this? Man, it just seems like we've got this problem of mission creep in so many institutions and organizations where they don't leave well enough alone. And I think in any institution, any country, any government, you have a set of issues, you have a set of the way you do things, and some things should be adjusted, and some things should be left alone. And it's hard to know where to choose. But when it comes to uniforms, I just think more people need to say, leave them alone. 
leave them alone. This is one of the value propositions of sports, that if I watch a Pittsburgh Steelers game, right, the players look like what I recognize a decade ago, a decade before that, before I was born, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think when you see if it's the MLB, and a lot of it is their own incompetence and miscommunication and, I don't know, setting up a situation where a camera flashbulb is going to reveal the underwear of the people wearing the uniforms, but they also change the aesthetic elements that nobody wants changed. And in the NBA, you have all of these alternate jerseys, and Nike is making a million uniforms, and now people turn on the games, and it takes them a couple minutes to even know which team is it, who's home, who's away. Nobody's asking for this. I just think, you know, maybe it's unfashionable or it gets dismissed, but I think it's a beautiful thing that in sports the uniform stays constant. I think it's a beautiful thing that the Celtics uniform looks like what it did during Bill Russell. Don't change it. That's all I'm saying. It's very simple. Yeah. Now, you covered the Warriors as a beat reporter, and so you, you got a lot of face time with players. Did players in general like the uniform changes or the city additions or – you know, the varieties of uh, merchandise that the, that the teams were getting ready to put in the fan shop so they had the players wear it for a game or two. Uh, how did players react to that stuff when you okay. were covering? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because in a way it's very revealing. Um, the players would get excited when they were wearing a retro jersey, right? It was exciting to them to wear something from – even those old sort of garish Warriors uniforms, but if they were the We Believe uniforms, then the players would get kind of excited about that. And I think that's this underrated thing. We were fed this, uh, this kind of mantra that, oh, if you don't like the new uniforms, you're old, and the young kids, this is what they want. I don't think that's actually true. I think young people like to be part of history. Now, the irony of the conversation that we're having right now, John, is that you cover Oregon football, I and I think they're almost the exception that proves the rule, right, where they made their thing constantly changing uniforms. And maybe if we're looking at why this started to become so widespread in sports, people wanted to be like Oregon with the Nike backing, and they thought that they would be regarded as just as cool as the way Oregon does it. But I think we only had room for one Oregon. And I don't think people want this. And, I, look, I'm only talking about it. I'm not pretending that this is the biggest issue in the world. It's just something that I hear about disproportionately than I would have expected. A lot of my readers, a lot of my subscribers write into me, and they say, this is annoying. When are the leagues going to stop this? And when I look around, it just, it just looks like money on the sidewalk where nobody's really taking this up and saying stop already. And I think if you, if you polled fans and you said, what are the best – uniforms historically in sports you would get you'd get name brand answers you'd get Dodgers you'd get yeah. Lakers you'd get Celtics you'd get Dallas Cowboys you wouldn't get Maryland football <laughs> no you would not you would not get Maryland football although maybe some of the people in Maryland have a special affection for uh, the 2011 crazy helmet uh, that grab national headlines. And I think that's part of what this is, though. It's the grab a headline. I think it's an easy headline. I do think a lot of the media is pretty corporate these days, and this is just an easy kind of article that you can get out of them where they'll talk up your new redesign and whatever explanation you give because they're hungry for content, and it's inspired more of this mission creep. And I just think it's one of these many things you see in sports where it's a little bit penny-wise, pound-foolish, and maybe you can justify it as we make a new uniform and we sell a new uniform at the shop. But 
again, part of the proposition of sports is that it's something that's passed down from one generation to the next. So maintaining that, holding on to that, especially if you have a franchise that has had some good times and some winning and people have some happy memories. I mean, I know that when Jerry Seinfeld talks about rooting for laundry, it's a bit of a jab at our absurdity as sports fans. But if you take that literally, then the laundry matters. Um, It matters quite a bit. It's your image. It's your brand identity, not to sound all corporate. Um, And I just think there needs to be more of a push to just settle down, simmer down, stop changing a bunch of stuff when you're a powerful signal in a culture that has a lot of noise already. Ethan Strauss, our guest, houseofstrauss.com, former bait reporter, covered the Warriors at ESPN and The Athletic uh, before launching House of Strauss. Uh, It's a terrific read. Give it a look if you're interested there. Ethan, um, what was that Warriors locker room like, and could you see the trajectory of this franchise unfolding before your eyes, or what was that experience like for you? Oh, yeah. The the question of what was the locker room like is very much dependent on when it was. And when the big winning started, that first season, it just felt like being on the casino floor and a jackpot has been hit and money just keeps flying out of the machine and it just doesn't stop. And everybody is over the moon about it. But Pat Riley's disease of more is a real dynamic. And people get used to winning. And then when they brought Kevin Durant in, maybe you can say that the titles count for the same and people talk about how many they won, but the happiness definitely shifted. And I remember somebody affiliated with the team said there are no wins here because you can't beat expectations when you have the most talented roster of all time. And I think it was fascinating to be around them and see the rise the way that Steph was almost like, uh, as his bodyguard put it, 1984 Michael Jackson and the mobs of people and all the energy around that uh, was just an amazing thing to behold. But then it was also fascinating just to watch people and the way NBA dynasties end. I mean, here's what's interesting to me about NBA dynasties is that they don't they don't generally end by natural causes, like in the NFL where it's injury generally, right? I mean, Breaks of the Game, that's a book about the uh, that, that might be uh, near and dear to your heart up there. Um, that's about the breakup of the Blazers championship team due to ego, and we're fascinated by it. I mean, we're fascinated by the Shaq-Kobe Lakers breaking up. And with the Warriors, the Kevin Durant Warriors broke up ultimately out of ego and personality conflict. It just seems like it's a very NBA thing that when you reach the top of the mountain, it's personality clashes that disrupt the whole venture as opposed to something more natural. The the Draymond Green today feels different from the exterior of the Draymond Green years ago when they were really locked in. And, and But I don't know what that was like because I wasn't covering those teams. I wasn't rooting for those teams. I was just watching from a distance. Uh, Draymond has become, I think, more of a problem. Uh, did you see that coming, or has Draymond always been Draymond, but the winning covered it up? Ooh, I think the winning might have accelerated some of those aspects, but that was early on. I think that Draymond and Steve were at loggerheads fairly early on, and you could see it in the first championship where Draymond is a little bit soft on stage. And he started to air some dirty laundry about his dynamic with Steve. And then in 2016, 
Draymond took another level. He went up another level with his game. And then there was some even more conflict, and they had to be separated in the locker room. And so I think with Draymond, it's just two things are true. Um, he's the greatest defensive player of his generation, and he's very high maintenance. And I don't think any of that has really changed much. He might not be ex- as explosive athletically uh, as he was in 2015, 2016, but he's still a really good player. He came back, they started winning again, and they just can't get rid of him. It's just this its a situation where you would want to be rid of all the headaches in theory, all these crazy situations where he bumps into a guy or kicks a guy or steps on a guy in a playoff series and suddenly there's a suspension. You just want to wash your hands of it. You just want to turn the page. But he always seems to play just well enough to where you can't. And they've been locked into this dynamic uh, dynamic for like a decade now. We're talking to Ethan Strauss. Houseofstrauss.com is the website where you can read his work. Uh, you wrote recently about the punt god, Matt Areza, who had some legal problems. He was accused of... Uh, sex assault, that uh, charges were dropped and there was no charges filed, and now he has been signed by the Kansas City Chiefs. Why weren't why weren't there more NFL teams lining up for Matt Areza? Frankly, if I had to guess, I think it's because they were scared of the media. I mean, there was media pressure. I remember last season, you know, the season before the season that just uh, that just finished up. Uh, the Eagles had an injured punter. They badly needed a punter for that playoff run to get through the Super Bowl. And there were Eagles media members, because the name uh, Matt Ariza was floated out there, who were warning against it and saying they shouldn't, and they ultimately did not. I'm guessing because maybe they didn't want to be questioned about it. If they went to the Super Bowl, it would be a topic in that media hullabaloo, which to me is absurd. It's just, I think it's this problem in media right now where people are watching everybody else's reaction and basing their reaction off of that, as opposed to just looking at the situation, forming their own opinion on the basis of evidence. From September of 2022, which was a few months after the allegation that was levied at Ariza in a civil suit in August of 2022, the San Diego District Attorney said that on the basis of video evidence, they were not going to press charges. They basically were saying that they had evidence of what had happened on video, and that was the reason. From there, we should have just moved on as, as sports media and said, okay, well, you know, we got this one wrong. But by then, I mean, there was all this hysteria in the aftermath of the initial accusations because they were so graphic, because they were so horrible, which ironically is why people should have been skeptical it was more like a movie than reality. Um, but there was never really any atoning. There was never really any accounting for it. And so it just kind of lingered out there over this guy's reputation. And I think it just took somebody like Andy Reid and the Chiefs uh, in per their situation where their very good punter was leaving in free agency to go, we don't care. This guy's been cleared. I mean, he's not even exonerated because he was never charged with a crime. Uh, the civil suit has been dropped. Um, so I think, you know, the chiefs had the capital, the social capital to just not care. And I think Andy Reid is somebody who tends not to, I mean, remember he got Michael Vick, um, and maybe enough time had passed, but that's a lot of time from September of 22, uh, 2022 to now. And I think it's just an example of how media groupthink 
uh, can be irrational and destructive when it overlaps with certain issues. Sabrina Ionescu and Steph Curry, I thought, provided a nice moment for the All-Star Weekend. But the rest of that weekend was an absolute disaster. Uh, Our show on the following Monday was callers calling in saying how much they hated it or turned it off and didn't watch it or just over it. Uh, what, What did you think of the weekend? And what can Adam Silver do to fix this? Oh, man. Uh, what did I think of the weekend? Well, to be honest, I did not watch the game because I knew what I was getting. I mean, this has been a few years of this where they're obviously not playing a real game. So if they're not going to care, then why should I care? Uh, it, you know, it's it's a little similar to some of the issues that we talked about at the beginning, right, where they can't leave well enough alone. They try to reimagine and change things. Nobody asks them to change. They had this weird setup where Adam Silver had the players, like a pickup game, pick their own teammates. I I don't think anybody was asking for that. I liked watching all-star games that were the East versus the West. I'm glad they at least returned to that aspect of it. But I think a lot of things in the NBA, frankly, feel like a vacuum in terms of leadership. And how Adam Silver, in order to maintain a pleasant dynamic with the players, won't just tell them what they need to hear for the sake of the league. I mean, it's absurd that they won't just try. Just try. This is the most watched basketball game during the regular season right now. This is a showcase. A lot of guys are making a lot more money than they used to. This is part of how the money gets made. And it's so bizarre to me that 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 can't just be handled. Just the conversation of can you guys try in just one game, just one game try, Maybe we can insure you uh, for injury risk in some way, you know, get that sorted out. But instead, it just seems like it's it's just so feckless at the top. Um, and there are a lot of related issues like that with the NBA where it just feels like weak leadership. And I just don't think something like this would happen on David Stern's watch, that level of a joke of a game. Ethan Strauss from HouseofStrauss.com. All right, finally to Bluey. We got to talk about the yeah. TV show Bluey. Um, you mentioned it in a recent piece. It becomes a regular subject in our household. Like, it's smart stuff. My wife approves of it. She likes the way uh, the parents and the kids interact with each other. I like the show. My kids love the show. What do you love about it in your household? Man, it is. I mean, my only, it's not even a criticism. I just find myself getting choked up sometimes unexpectedly. <laughs> i got to cover up my face. My son is watching me. Um What I love about it is that, in a way, it's a show about being a kid, but it's also a show about being a parent. And you might think that'd be boring to a kid to watch parents try to figure out how to parent, but I think they're curious about us. They want to know why we're doing what we're doing and what their boundaries are. And so some of these episodes really resonate with me. I love the one where the father's trying to teach them to play chess because that's what smart people do, he says. <laughs> and it's a struggle. He's got out-of-the-box kids who don't follow a plan or a script, and he's really trying to get them to learn this sort of thing. And uh, I just saw myself in that, as I'm sure a lot of parents listening right now can see themselves in it. And I think fundamentally it is a deep show, even if it's for kids, and they, they do the humor right and everything else because it's about that dynamic where – you're so needed by your children and you're trying to give them things in order to not need you at some point. And that is a deep dynamic. And I just haven't seen a show really cover it. And 
I don't think that we're in an era right now where there's a lot of great TV. I think we used to be very recently, but it's not like that anymore. And obviously movies um, are not at a high point. So, yeah, this is a kid's show, sure. And I still think it's one of the best shows on television right now, and I would encourage people to watch some of the better episodes. There's an episode called The Creek in in which Bandit takes the girls and their friend to a park, and then the kids get bored, and they go down to the creek, and they find dragonflies and tadpoles and frogs. And and um, Bluey sort of overcomes her aversion to being outdoors. And it's one of these things where, like, you know, you're trying to teach kids about the outdoors, and you really can hear your parents' voice as you're watching it. And oh. I just love the way the kids speak to the parents. Like, there's a couple of shows, Peppa Pig's one of them. I don't like the way she talks to adults. Like, the kid's a brat, mm. you know? But yeah. these kids are not. So there you go. No, and it's it's realistic in a way. And it's the kids. The kids aren't brats. I think sometimes they make the dad in some shows just kind of a goofball. Um, and I think Bluey sort of nails a guy who he's not stern overly. He's not strict or mean, but he's also not a goofball. He's not an idiot. And he's just trying to do the best by his kids. And I, I'm really impressed by it. And I'm kind of amazed at some of the notes it hits emotionally and again like you said you can hear your parents in it and then you if you're a parent you can hear yourself in it as well with what you're trying to get your kids to do on this crazy journey where uh, you're trying to get them to be independent while at the same time enjoying these moments when they still need you houseofstrauss.com check it out ethan strauss thank you man oh thanks so much for having me you bet there he goes I've been reading him for a while. Smart stuff. I always leave it feeling like I learned something. Ethan Strauss, great guest. Anna's going to join us in the studio coming up. We have so much to talk about. Among the topics, um, tipping, gossip, FaceTiming in public. Yeah, we'll talk about those things. Plus, the Blazers, can they get a win without Malcolm Brogdon? All that ahead. Anna walked into the studio, and I just uh, I threw on... Usher and Ludacris, you know, so that she so she had some walk-in music. So in that moment, she uh, she got a big smile on her face. You you need a walk-up song. Yeah, that's my walk-up song. You need a walk-up song when you walk in the room. Then uh, the listeners would know too. I won't have to say Anna's in the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I'll have to do is uh, you'll just hear a sounder in the background, and you'll hear. Pe- Suddenly you'll hear uh, Anna's walk-up music, you know, Usher, Ludacris, boom, Anna's here. I don't have to say that. I play that uh, in the car on the way to school sometimes with the kids, you know. They're having like a lethargic morning and I need to get the juices flowing. Change the mood. Yeah. We roll up to school, windows down, and that blaring out the window. (laughs) That's good. That's Uh good to know. Yeah. Fire them all up. I'm that mom. You're the hype person on the way to school. (laughs) Uh, we just had Ethan Strauss on, sports writer, uh, who writes a column, and we ended up talking about Bluey, the cartoon character, at the end of the interview. Oh, yeah. show always goes in weird places, mm-hmm. uh, weird, weird directions. Um, I like Bluey. Yeah. Do you like Bluey? If it's so, why? one of the few kids shows I can stomach watching, because I think the writers have figured out, like, we need to create a show that grown-ups don't hate. Mm-hmm. So they'll bury little nuggets in there that are really just jokes intended for grown-ups to understand, 
and I appreciate that. We watched a uh, episode, like some of the cartoons the kids put on. Yeah, I pretend to watch. Oh, for I sure. gotta be honest. Most of them. I will be, uh, you know, I'll be on the gram, uh, you know, flipping through reels. <laughs> really need to stop. I'll be on TikTok looking at things. You know, what, what's Costco gotten it lately? <laughs> um, I'll be on the Twitter or X or whatever uh, they're calling it uh-huh. now. Yeah. I'll be checking scores of games. Yeah. Ca- I'm casually paying attention to Caillou or whatever's no. on the screen. Caillou has never been on our screen. <laughs> whatever's on in the room. Boycott what do you have against show. Caillou? He he's is four years he's old. He's a whiny and annoying little twerp. There's no way I wanted our kids modeling their behavior right. after that guy. Peppa Pig's on my list. Same. I don't like... How Peppa talks to her parents and yeah. other adults. I just don't like the fact that she walks around going, I'm bored. That's boring. Because you really want your kids to say that all the time. I find myself telling our kids all the time, I didn't have a device. I didn't have an iPad. Yeah. I didn't have Apple TV. I had one or two channels for most of my childhood, and I had nothing. <laughs> I had, like, go out in the backyard and entertain yourself, kid. And I find myself... Drawing upon those experiences. Like yeah. the other day, I was putting a kickstand on the nine-year-old's bike. Uh-huh. And I thought to myself, I've done this before. Right. I was nine <laughs> when I did this last. <laughs> like, I, you know, I made things. Uh-huh. I did things I wasn't supposed to do. Like, yeah. you know, I would like uh, build what? a treehouse. Go on. I would hammer uh, nails and wood that I wasn't supposed to be using into trees that I wasn't supposed to be hitting nails and wood into to build a treehouse in the backyard. And, and uh, one time, my dad... Uh, bless him, left his car at home, his normal car that he drives, and he took my mom's car to work. Okay. And I said, I'm going to surprise my dad. I'm going to wax his car and wash his car. Oh. And I washed it, and then I got grabbed a uh, can of what I thought was wax Uh-oh. off of the shelf, and I started uh, rubbing onto the back of the car. Well, it turns out it was rubbing compound. Took the paint off. <gasps> so, no. How took, far did you uh, get? I just got like a uh, small football-shaped oval. In a, in a prominent back of the car, of the back car. of the car. My dad uh, not happy about that one, but uh, we got through it. Oh, no. We got through it. But I did some things. I was always outside. Yeah. I, the the sound of my mother's voice calling me, in the distance, is how I knew when dinner was served. Like you know, dinner's on the table. I could hear my mom yelling, mm-hmm. just shouting. There was no chow bell. Shouting out the back sliding glass doors, and I I was you know, the equivalent of like a block and a half away in the country, doing whatever, you know, climbing a tree or doing whatever. And, uh, you know, one time we were walking, and I lived, you know, a little rural. Mm -hmm. I've said this before. There was, like, vineyards, and there was nurseries, and there were trees, and there Mm -hmm. were streams and creeks. One time we were out exploring in the middle of, like, just brush that was out maybe a mile or two from my parents' house. We found a stagecoach. (laughs) That's so weird. An abandoned stagecoach that had, like, only two wheels on it. Looked like it had to be 150 years old. I'm pretty sure someone on the Oregon Trail didn't make it. And that's where they stopped. Bandits yeah, got to that's it. Where they it stopped. was an old Wells Fargo yeah. stagecoach. Something like that. But, you know, you're not used to seeing a stagecoach that's out in the middle really of nowhere. That's really weird. Like, did you, yeah. you have to have gone back and reported that. No. Well, I mean, we've told people, but yeah. nobody seemed to care. Like, there's okay. a stagecoach like a mile and a half from here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But uh, we went all through it. You know, yeah. kind of ransacked it, but it had already been ransacked, I'm sure, multiple generations over. But it was kind of cool to find stuff like that. We'd find stuff and we'd examine it and 
we just kind of fool around. And that's how we did it. We weren't bored. So do you think we're screwing up our kids? Like, we should just throw the I devices away, eliminate screen time? I think by the time we figure that out, it's going to be too late, to what be honest. Mean? I think one of the benefits of having an older daughter, the, you know, we have a 21-year-old daughter yeah. now, and then two young ones, is I know some of the things I did wrong. Yeah. I, can, I go, okay, here's what I would have done differently. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and here's what I did right, and here's what I would have done differently. And so I had a chance to do that. But I don't know what these young ones, because technology has taken over. I don't remember. Yeah, but we, we have the choice. We have the choice of, like, not putting do them we? on the device. Do yes, we? I said absolutely. the other night, it was last night, I said to the seven-year-old, I said, it's time for you to turn your light off and go to bed. And I said, I'm going to count to three. And I said, one. And she laughed. And I said, two. And she said, keep going. And, and then I said, why? What, why are you laughing? And she said, because what are you going to do when you say three? You're going to do nothing. You know what happens? Nothing. Wow. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> so she called you on that. She called me on it. Mm-hmm. You should never count to three. Mm-hmm. It's bad. It, there's nowhere to go with it. Back in yourself, painting yourself into a corner, folks. Uh, but there's older parents know that. Older parents have that wisdom. That's why grandparents, I think, have answers. Because grandparents know what they would have done differently, what they have done differently, what they got right, what they got wrong. They can. They have advanced scouting right in front of them. They're looking at their children, going, <laughs> "All right, here's what I missed. Here's what you should be doing." And that's probably I know, why. but some parents get annoyed at that because, like, when their parents or their in-laws chime in about how they're raising their kids, sometimes they want to turn to the parent and be like, hey, you had your chance already, okay? You, you did already, it. You did it. You did it. Now just be a grandparent. Be a grandparent. Oh, we have, we have a lot to talk about. Storming the court. Duke, uh, star player, got a slight knee injury, might have been dr- traumatized, um, says it's uh, sore now, no major injury. This came on Saturday as Wake Forest beat Duke. We have been talking about storming the court. You obviously want to focus on player safety, but seems to be some overreaction about getting people off the court. But I also go, like, if nothing's done, somebody's going to get really hurt one day in one of those things. And you're going to have a player getting an interaction with a with a fan. We already saw that last, two years ago in the Civil War. DJ Johnson of Oregon punched uh, an Oregon State fan as he was leaving the field. You're going to have these kind of uh, loss of civility moments and potential injury if you, ha- if you don't at least slow the fans down as they get to the court. What do you, where do you stand on the humanity of, gosh, that's a joyful moment, or no, that's really dangerous scale? Um, I think... It- Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's different for basketball versus football. I think with football, there's a natural barrier. It's not that easy to get to the field. And I find that the people in charge, cops, security guards, do a fairly good job of fending off the crowd until there is an appropriate time for that to happen. I've been part of, <laughs> I've been part of the crowd that storms the field, and it's a lot of fun. I can understand the concern about injury, but I think basketball is completely different because there's just no physical barrier to it. Um, it's so much more accessible. And so, you know, maybe there does need to be a cooling off period before something like that happens. I've seen NBA ushers hold up a rope. Yeah. And we all act like it's a magic rope that yeah. we can't touch. Right. I just think the psychology of seeing a barrier, even if it's not yes. a barrier, yeah. slows people down. Right. Right, well, like in a football field, sometimes it's like a ten foot tall drop, right? Yeah, 
down to the field. There's a bit, there's a, hey, wait a minute before you jump <laughs> moment yeah. that happens for a lot of people. For others, not so much. <laughs> it depends but, on how much alcohol but they've I, consumed. I also think, like, if you know you're Wake Forest and you're playing Duke in uh-huh. a home game. Yes. And you know, hey, if we're going to win this game, this is going to be a potential bad scene. Why would you not have extra security there? Why would you not line them up in the final two minutes of the game in front of the student section or whatnot? Just in a, not, I'm not saying you're going to keep them off the court. Just in a show of slow your roll, yeah. you'll be allowed on the court. Uh, maybe they announce it before the game. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go on the court, please respect that there are players and coaches on the court. Um, and uh, you will be allowed on the court after a 90 second. Uh, you know, expiration at the end of regulation. Mm-hmm. And then you let them storm the court and have the moment, but you're also selling them, hey, you got to wait like a minute before you come running out here. Mm-hmm. Would you think people would adhere to it? I, I think, think a lot, would. enough of them would, would yeah. that I think it would stop it from being a dangerous situation. Right. You'd still get some fence, you know, Red Rover, Red Rover, <laughs> send Johnny right over. Johnny's going to get through. Because <laughs> what I don't want too is, like, I've been that security guard. In college, I worked at Candlestick Park. Yeah, how was And that? I wore a yellow jacket. Uh-huh. And I was down on the field right by the visiting locker room. And so it was a pretty hostile area. Mm-hmm. And I, we were, like, we were told, no, you're not tackling anybody. Okay. You're here as a show. Right. It's a, a show. Barrier. It's a visible barrier. And you're here to be a witness. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco PD was there if there was a real problem. Because I wasn't going to die for seven bucks an hour or whatever I was getting paid to be out on the field at Candlestick Park at freezing cold, you know. So, but we never had anything. We never had a problem, you know. The fans generally thought it was a bad idea to try to jump onto the field. You've been to a lot more of these events than I have. I mean, do you see the potential for a major injury, or is it like 99% of fans don't go that hog wild, and it's like the same thing where it's like the 1% ruins it for everybody? I think there's certain conferences, like the ACC and the SEC, maybe some Big 12, where it's, where it's worse. Really? I have Because I think they're a little more unhinged. In those footprints when it comes to basketball. Okay. I'm talking about Big 12 basketball. I'm not talking about football. I'm talking about, you know, the SEC in certain spots, but the ACC more so. Like, Wake Forest Duke might be one of those perfect storm moments Mm -hmm. where you've got the brand of Duke. You've got Wake Forest that, you know, hasn't had all that many times where they could beat Duke. This is a year they can beat Duke. So it's kind of lined up. You could... You could see it coming. Mm-hmm. And I had people say, you know, if you're favored in the game, you should not be storming the court. But Wake Forest fans were like, this, we don't, how often do we beat Duke? <laughs> and so if I was the AD at Wake Forest, like, why don't you see that coming? Yeah. And so wh- again, back to the manpower it's, issue. It's a, yeah, it's a, hey, extra security. Don't, you know, and you don't put all the security down on the court at the beginning of the game. Normal security. But with about two or three minutes to go in the game, as the potential arises you as a show bring more security into the area Mm -hmm. and you're signaling to the fans like a you know back off or how about an announcement from the pa during the five minute timeout or whatever and where they say hey uh you know if you're going to go onto the court to celebrate or whatever after the game uh just know we uh, have players and coaches on the court that need to uh be able to get off the court because what happened was and this is what I don't like. As I will rewatch the video, mm-hmm. I had people saying, oh, gosh, the Duke player was pouting and he was just hanging out on the court. Yeah, he was slowly walking off the court. But mm-hmm. if you watch, 
if you watch uh, Filipowski carefully, Kyle Filipowski's the player, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, even the overhead cameras, some people have said, oh, look at him, he's throwing like an elbow. I don't blame him in that situation. When people are just running at you, yeah. you get big like a rebounder. Right. You're going to put your shoulder up. You're going to, you're trying to absorb what you don't know where it's coming from. Right. And so I think he was in a bad situation. But when you watch the Wake Forest fans, they're on the court before it goes zero. Yeah. Like they ran onto the court during mm-hmm. the game. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Yeah. That should be your banned. You're expelled. You, you, you shouldn't be allowed back expelled. into the arena. Yes. Expelled. You shouldn't be allowed in the arena. If okay. you're going on the court while there's a second left on the court, mm-hmm. well, how is that different? Like, get back and just calm down. Do we need it at all? I mean, is is this kind of thing necessary, or should it just go away altogether? Ideally, it would just happen so infrequently that it's not even a question. Yeah. But I do find that we are seeing more and more court storming. And field storming. And it's field storming. And it becomes this um, Washington State, you know, beats Arizona and Pullman. I get it. You hadn't beat Arizona. They're a top five team. You're Washington State. You have had your teeth kicked in for, you know, the, all since August mm-hmm. with the Pac-2. T- mm-hmm. you're, you're left behind. And yeah. it's a cathartic moment. I get it. But, like... I'm not sure I need to see that when Arizona State beats Oregon. Mm-hmm. That happened. Mm-hmm. Arizona State beat Oregon in football a couple years ago. I'm at the game. I'm in the press box. I watched the fans <laughs> storm the field. Right. And I thought, okay, let's calm down here. <laughs> that You didn't win a national championship. You know, and I, if you're Oregon, you let you leave going, hey, you know, that was kind of a compliment. <laughs> they stormed the field after they beat us. Like, you know, so I just think it's happening more and more. Jay Billis uh, with ESPN says it's ESPN's fault because they're showing it. They're mm. glorifying it. Do you agree with that? Um, Yeah, that kind of like that goes dovetails with the argument about protesters, demonstrators. And they're not really even demonstrators, but they're like vandalizers. The people who go out with, you know, some purpose that they state to break windows and um, cause property damage when they're supposedly, you know, demonstrating in favor of a cause. That argument of would they really do that much damage and be that demonstrative if the news crews weren't there to cover it? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think media certainly does play a role in it. I think media can make a choice of how much of it they cover, how they cover it. Um, and sure, yeah, I think if people have a chance where they can get on TV, whether it's national TV or regional TV, acting a fool, and they think that's a possibility, I think that that does add something to it. Do you want this kid on your football team? I'll ask and answer that question next. Gus the Bus. That's who I want to talk about in this segment. I wrote about Gus the Bus on Saturday. Gus Cordova is a 16-year-old who uh, goes to school in Central Texas, Lake Travis High School, Powerhouse High School. Gus goes 6'5", 250. He's a defensive end. They call him the bus. And he's now at the center of a storm, a storm that may require some forgiveness and time for people to get over. Um Cliff Notes version of the story. If you want the full thing, go to johnconzano.com 
It is a yarn and a half Texas-sized peanut story, so to speak. But Gus was uh, getting an IV along with his other teammates prior to a game. That's what they do in Texas because it's going to be 100 degrees. They get IVs the day before the game, and Gus and some other teammates were in there. And at one point, um, a underclassman by uh, the name Carter Mannon came in to get his IV. And Carter Mannon has a peanut allergy. Carter told the other teammates, I have this allergy. It's serious stuff. It could kill me if I am even around one peanut. Uh, The teammates all kind of joked about it, and Gus in particular pushed and said, "Um, you know, is it true, one peanut, you're 6'4", 250 pounds yourself, like one peanut? And he said, yes, it can kill me, and he showed his EpiPen that he carries with him. And the worst idea ever was hatched after that meeting. You know what happened next. Gus and another teammate went to the locker room, got a can of peanuts, and poured some of them into the shoes of Carter Menon and sprinkled them around the locker and then left. They even videotaped it. They are 16 years old and stupid. Now, Gus's mother admits, my son is stupid. He is an idiot. He did a bad thing. That was terrible. Uh, But she also points out that Gus grew a conscience overnight. He had mixed feelings about it. He and the other kid went back to the locker. They picked up the peanuts. They got what they thought were all of the peanuts. Carter arrived to his locker. He says, he told his mother, he saw a peanut. He didn't think much of it. He stepped around it. He opened his locker He said something wasn't quite right. He claims that two or three peanuts were still in the locker. He stepped back, said, I can't be around this, told a coach. They came. They uh, cleaned out his locker. They gave him a new jersey. He did develop a rash on his forearm. He did not need the EpiPen. He did not go to the ER. He did not need medical attention. Played in a football game, in fact, four hours later. Who didn't play in the game? and justifiably so, were Gus Cordova and the other teammate who helped him put peanuts in the locker and hatch that terrible idea in the first place. They were suspended. They admitted their faults. They uh, suffered uh, discipline where they had to run in uh, 100-degree heat between practices. The school determined that this this happened outside of school hours. They left it to the football coach to handle the discipline. There was no expulsion. There was no suspension. Of course, Carter's mother's not happy with this. I spoke to Carter's mother Friday night. I spoke to Gus's mother Friday night. I got to be honest. I like both their kids. I think these two kids should have been better teammates, should have been better to each other. Gus could have been a better teammate. He knows he could have. He has written a letter of apology to Carter, says he's apologized multiple times. Gus... um, uh, is being recruited by 44 different schools have offered him scholarships, including the University of Oregon, the University of Texas as well, although some say Texas has cooled off since hearing about the peanut incident. Carter's mother says this is not enough. She doesn't believe he has suffered. Gus has suffered enough consequences. She would like to see some schools pass on him have him have some real-life consequences. She said he has continued to bully her kid at school. Gus's mother said that's not true. 
I said, why don't the two of you just sit down and settle this? They said, we have. We sat down. We had a cordial lunch. We agreed on most of the facts. But what they don't agree on is what should happen to Gus moving forward. Anna, listeners, I ask you, what should happen to Gus moving forward? Is this enough? Two-game suspension and some running? Has he learned his lesson? Um, Carter uh, and Gus set to be teammates next season, unless one of them transfers. Uh, looming problem, community divided, two mothers at odds, internet in an uproar. Where do you stand? <laughs> well, I don't think all of the outside voices help in this. I mean, I think if this had been kept between two families, um, then it would have been resolved much more easily. I don't like the idea that Gus, the bus, has continued perhaps to bully, you know, the other kid, Carter, the one with the peanut allergy. Um, And I think the consequences will play out. I mean, like you said, Texas may have already cooled on him. And the reality in today's world is that (laughs) if he's a good football player, he's going to play somewhere. Someone will, you know, give him a chance at redemption and say, come play for us. I'm sure you've learned your lesson. Let's make sure that you don't do anything, you know, out of character while you're playing for us. Yeah, I, th- I, I don't want to see someone's life altered or ruined based upon a stupid thing they did when they were 16 that didn't cause and thankfully didn't cause Carter to have to go to the hospital or use an EpiPen you know, people who have allergies to nuts will tell you that's serious stuff mm-hmm. and parents are anxious about it. And I get yeah. it. I just I don't want to see Gus's future altered. But I also need to know Gus knows the extent of this. Like, I think the school had a breakdown. Like, I think the Lake Travis High School principal should have brought both kids in, both moms in and pretty much did what I did on Friday night. Like, I talked to both of the moms and I said, hey, look. Like, what do you want here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you want to ruin the kid's life? And you, know, you want him to not play football? And she said, I just want, I don't think he's learned his lesson. I want a real mm-hmm. consequence. And so I think that could be handled between the two moms. Like, what is a real consequence? And do you not hear, you know, and the other thing is, like, Gus's parents need to talk to Gus and say, Gus, if you are talking to this kid at school, mm-hmm. shut up. Right. Stop. Right. You're not helping yourself. Right. And, you know, and be a, be a decent human being. Be a good teammate. But at the same time, I don't want to see Gus's life ruined. Like, if, if I'm the University of Oregon, I yeah, keep recruiting him. You do? I would, yes. Okay. I'd want to have a conversation, look him in the eye. I need yeah. to see this kid's eyes when I'm talking to him. <laughs> see if he's, you know, if he's, is he being a jerk or is he? does he look sound remorseful? He's written a letter. You know, he's apologized to the kid. He's running the heat. He missed two football games. I, I don't know what else you can give him for, you know, like, based upon what actually happened. Right. I mean, I think he's fortunate that he did go back and remove most of the peanuts because it's one of those things. It was like, what was the intent? And then what was the impact? If if this kid had gotten really sick, if oh, his throat had closed died? up or What if he died? died? Yeah. You know, then, then, yeah. then it's a different story. District attorney in that county says no charges, that introducing an allergen by itself is not a crime. Hmm. So there you go. See what Oregon does. Leave it here. Five o'clock hours, the happy hour. Anna's got the five at five. Punch and audio still in front of us. We've got great sound, including Charles Barkley, says the product in the NBA ain't what it used to be. Old man on his lawn or spitting truth? We'll talk about Barkley, the NBA, and more coming up later this hour. You'll hear that sound as well. 
Peter King, Monday morning quarterback, announcing his retirement today. He's hanging it up. Says he wants to be a fan. 44 years as a sports writer. 27 years writing a column that spanned A to Z and beyond. He watched 40 Super Bowls in a row in person. Never got to see the commercials. Never got to see the mistakes made by the TV crew. Never got to be in his living room putting a square pool on the wall. Peter King says he wants to watch a Super Bowl on television next year. He's retiring. Says he's looking forward to being bored. Whatever do you mean, Peter King? I think he won't be able to stay away in every form. He should write a book. There you go. Anna's here. She's going to do the five at five. Let's go. The five at five. Number one. Uh, I need you to tell me if this is a big deal or not, because I don't really have the context. Okay. Uh, Three of the NFL's top prospects will not be participating in the on-field drills at the Combine this week. Caleb Williams, Jaden Daniels, and Marvin Harrison Jr. are all declining to work out. They'll be in Indianapolis for interviews and to talk to teams. Williams and Daniels will throw for teams, but at their pro days in March. And Harrison Jr. won't work out at all. Well, the Combine, for a lot of players, gives you an opportunity to win the confidence of general managers and owners who are picking, scouts who are watching. But if you are the presumptive number one overall pick, like Caleb Williams is, you can only hurt yourself at the combine. So I see the logic. And if you're the presumptive best wide receiver in the draft, then you don't throw either. Jaden Daniels surprises me a little bit, but there's a reason probably why he's not going to work out. Now, Caleb Williams says he'll work out at pro day. He'll still let the scouts see him throw. But um, those who are already critical of Caleb Williams see him as an egocentric guy are going to use this to, to kind of point out, oh, he's skirting the ability to prove that he's the best quarterback. But the truth is he knows he doesn't have to throw for them. He has three years of tape that show him playing at the highest level. This will not have an impact on his draft status, nor will it impact Harrison I don't know about Jaden Daniels. I'm still not sold on Jaden Daniels as a great pro. I don't think he should have won the Heisman either. Mm. I don't think he had the best season. But let's see what happens. But I, I'm, not a, I'm not surprised in this era that some players are saying, hey, I'm not going to do it. I have nothing to gain and a lot to lose. Meanwhile, some other player that nobody's talking about is going to go out there and perform really well, and, and their draft status will skyrocket. So... You know, I I think it's another case of college players using one of the tools that's available to them to better themselves. If, if you were Jaden Daniels' agent, John, would you suggest that he does participate in the throwing events at the combine? It it just it really depends on what because I don't know what the agent's hearing so far. Maybe he's heard enough to know that somebody's going to draft him high, and he can only hurt himself by going and throwing. And and that kind of what this suggests. One of two things. One, that they have a promise from somebody or they know somebody's seriously interested. And so they think, hey, if he throws, he has a chance to maybe hurt himself here. Or they just want to appear 
Like maybe their uh, implied uh, value, Anna, you always talk about oh. that. Maybe Jaden Daniels is going, well, if Caleb Williams isn't going to throw, I'm not going to throw either. <laughs> right. You know, we are. I'm the, I'm the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. So It's like a Hollywood actor not uh, having to audition for a role. Why am I? Yeah. What, what am I doing out here? <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you put a price tag and you say, you know, Caleb Williams, the price to see him play is, you know, $299. And you ask Jaden Daniels what your price, what's the price to see Jaden Daniels play? His agent's going to go two hundred and ninety nine dollars, <laughs> as it so happens. You know, I I don't know. I I think the NFL is so weird this way that you just need one to believe in you. You need one person to believe in you to be a first round pick, not two. You need one. And so I'm going to guess Jaden Daniels' agent is confident he's going to be picked high. They're still going to do workouts. Like Caleb Williams is still going to throw. But I think the NFL GMs, there's there's a paralysis by analysis that goes on with the combine. Sometimes you've seen Caleb Williams for three years. You got it. You seen enough? Number two. Have you checked your passwords and created two-factor authentication on your accounts? Why? Well, Adrian Wojnarowski was hacked on Twitter. And the New York Jets' Sauce Gardner had his Instagram, Twitter, and emails hacked, forcing him to get a new phone and a new number. Now, the worst of this, you know, this didn't transpire into anything too terrible, but it was interesting because Woj's Twitter account posted a link supposedly promoting NBA Top Shot, an NFT venture <laughs> that is on the decline. Yeah, I saw that tweet. Did it Did it strike you as weird? It did strike me as, why is he promoting <laughs> NBA Top Shot? And uh, It falsely stated that a free NFT pack is available to all customers, but the scammers were just using the company's name to trick fans. They're using all of... Uh, Wojnarowski's followers. 6.3 million yeah. followers. Did he not have two-factor authentication? I don't know. You, you know what's funny? Him. I email with him, and <laughs> you know, he shot me a note the other day. I'm going to ask him, is this really you? You know? <laughs> Great. Have you been hacked? Yeah, he'll love that, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Number three. Mm, all right, Richard Sherman. I didn't hear about this till today. So he spent the weekend uh, in jail following a DUI arrest. But uh, he paid the $5,000 bail and got an order from the judge to steer clear of drinking. <clears throat> he was arrested for a DUI after getting pulled over by Washington State Police, 2 a.m., uh, for speeding. Now, during the stop, he admitted to drinking two margaritas. He refused a breathalyzer and was ultimately arrested and taken to the King County Jail. There you go. Um I, I, when I heard this, I worried about him because, you know, we've seen some things and he's had some incidents in his past where there's been some erratic behavior. And maybe this is just a case of Richard Sherman doing something really stupid, drinking two margaritas, as he said, and then getting in his car. But I'm just always struck by the idea that, you know, you were in a world of Uber. You know, and you're Richard Sherman or you're anybody else of his caliber and status of fame. You should not be anywhere near behind a wheel of a vehicle while impaired. Interestingly, he was still on supervision from an incident Last nearly one. 
two years ago. So he was on 24 months of monitored supervision, so like probation after pleading guilty to criminal trespass and negligent driving. So he was really just a few weeks away from completing his sentence. Celebrating? No? Bad joke? <sighs> I, I just, I just, that I worry about more than the judgment, the bad judgment, I worry about things like CTE and brain injuries to NFL players when I hear, like, even when I hear Antonio Brown and people say, oh, it's mental illness, it's a mental health thing, and you see Richard Sherman, they go, oh, it's a bad judgment thing. I always kind of, in the back of my mind, am going, I wonder about guys who threw their brains into collisions over and over again. Hmm. Is he medicating something? This is, again, now a second incident in 24 mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Sad stuff. Are we on three or four? Mm, three. Four. Four? 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 Maybe. All right, let's go. Number four. <laughs> There's some <clears throat> interesting video. Sorry, frog in my throat. Uh, Cam Newton involved in a scuffle at a seven-on-seven -seven youth football tournament in Atlanta. Now, the video shows, or seems to show, him wearing one of those fancy hats, being shoved by three people near the top of a set of steps before pushing and shoving and grabbing moves toward a fence line. This video is less than 30 seconds, and then the altercation is broken up by a police officer. But this happened at a, a, a football tournament. Now, he doesn't appear to throw any punches in the video. He seems to be fending off three other people. Um, and it's just, uh, there's still a lot of questions about what exactly was happening here. I, um, well, his, his team won the tournament. <laughs> well, there um, is that. I always hesitate to call it a fight. They call it a scuffle. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a scuffle. But a couple of the headlines say he was involved in a fight. Because uh -huh. to me, a fight... At a seven-on-seven seven game, is there's people, multiple people throwing punches. Yeah. This the video does not appear to be a fight, and it's not a wild brawl either. And mm -hmm. one of the other headlines is wild brawl. That's the world we're in now. <laughs> it's a wild brawl <laughs> on the steps. Um, I see somebody pushing him. I see guys. Cam Newton's a big person. That's yeah. the other thing. Oh yeah, one punch, one punch thrown mm -hmm. at him. I did not see him throw a punch back. Correct. So, no idea what happened, but get some security out of those seven-on-seven seven events. <laughs> Number five. Five. Okay, <clears throat> let's do it. Let's talk about LeBron James saying, leave Bronny alone, you haters. Um, he's issuing this public plea after ESPN's latest mock draft, which has Bronny, who is a 19-year-old playing basketball at USC. It has him staying in school instead of going pro in 2024. Um, LeBron James says he's fed up with the scrutiny that Bronny has faced so far in his collegiate career, and he unloaded on social media over it. He says, can y'all just please let the kid be a kid and enjoy college <laughs> basketball? The work and results will ultimately do the talking no matter what he decides to do if y'all don't know he doesn't care what a mock draft says he just works earned not given okay so the guy who started the fire is now saying can we stop starting fires mm -hmm. like i i get it like Bronny james lebron james um i i i want to root for Bronny yeah. because i think he's in an impossible position yeah but I also think LeBron hasn't helped him. 
And I don't think LeBron has been a uh, helper. What do you think is LeBron's biggest mistake that he's made in this? Just saying, I want to play, I want him to be on a team, I want to play on the same team as him, and, you know, he's good enough, saying he's good enough to play in the NBA, he's better than some players in the NBA right now. All of that stuff that does not sort of point to the idea that he's a kid. Steven? (laughs) Steven? (laughs) Bueller? You tell me, Steven. LeBron, LeBron James says, let him be a kid, damn it. He should have been saying that the whole time, shouldn't he have been? Instead of saying, oh, he could play in the NBA right now. Like, he said that a couple of months ago, that he belongs in the NBA and he's better than a lot of the cats that are in the league. And now a couple months later, uh, after USC's struggling and Ronnie's not playing as well as maybe he thought he would, now we need to leave him alone. Now let's just let the kid live and don't talk about his future when you were the one that was literally saying he belongs in the NBA right now. I just, I, this is the stuff that drives me crazy with LeBron. And you're right with Bronny. Like, it's an impossible situation. And I do feel for the kid. Like, I want him to be good. I want him to have a successful career in the NBA if he makes it. But, yeah, we should just let him be a kid the whole time and not, you know, put all this pressure on him that he belongs in the NBA right now before he even plays college basketball. Here's LeBron when Bronny picked USC. First of all, congratulations to my son on, um, you know, his next journey and picking a, a, a great uh, university in USC. Um, you know, I'm proud of him. Um, this is uh, an incredible thing. I was, I think I told Mike after the game, you know, unless it was like one of my, you know, great-grandmothers or great-grandfathers or someone that I was way before my time, um, to my knowledge, uh, this is the first one out of the James gang to go to college. Um, obviously, uh, his dad didn't go to school. Um, you know, his, his mom didn't go to college. Um, you know, I think my mom went, stepped on, maybe stepped on campus for a little bit, you know, maybe a community college or something, but she had my little ass running around, so she couldn't spend much time in the classroom. Uh, 19 years old, she couldn't do that. I was three. Um, so it's um, very, 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 very um, exciting, very humbling, um, and, and great moment for our, uh, for our family. You know, it's just uh, super cool. He's a great kid. Uh, USC is getting a great kid. Obviously, they, he's there to play basketball, but uh, you know, they're going to be a, a super um, surprised how, how great of a kid he is, uh, even though they've been recruiting him for quite a while. Yeah, look, I... Uh, well, he sounds sane there. He does, but I also think he's using that platform at an NBA game to s- announce that his kid has chosen USC and talk about it. Like, I don't know. He's so tactical with everything. He does everything for a reason. There's a purpose why he's doing it. I just... But, like, he, he had the tweet. It was in uh, 2023. Like, he, Bronny's better than these guys I'm watching on League Pass. That He's the one that's put all the pressure on it. I just, I can't I can't just not forget that you say these things, LeBron. Like, this, let, let him be a kid. Yeah, let him be a kid. It's fine. I think he should. that should have been the message all along. That's a five at five. Peanut allergy kid. We talked about it the last, uh, last uh, segment. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think should happen? If you're Oregon, do you stop recruiting Gus Cordova, who put another teammate in a bad position? Texas, there's a report out there that says Texas and Steve Sarkeesian have backed off, but I am also told 
that they have not informed Gus Cordova that the scholarship's rescinded or anything like that. They just have heard nothing on that front. Uh, I kind of guess that Steve Sarkeesian isn't going to be against a second chance, given his own history. Like, you know, but you tell me, Anna, would you stop recruiting the kid? I don't, I just don't know if I would want the hassle of having to talk about the issue. Like, you tell me, aren't there enough good football players out there, high school football players, to go and recruit besides the kid that comes with the the peanut, you know, controversy? I don't know. I just don't know if you, like, I, I did a lot of stupid things when I was 16, yeah, 17. Yeah, we all did. I mean, that's, Ridiculous, you know, that's stupid, idiotic, uh, dumb. Yes. And the kid did a stupid thing. Right. And I, if he's remorseful and he's learned from it, like... You know, what are we doing here? No, but I'm saying, I'm not saying that he's not recruitable and that Oregon or any other university should take a moral high ground and say, oh, he made this malicious, terrible mistake. We're not going to recruit him because of this. I think there's grace there that they can offer to him and say, hey, we get it. You're 16. Your prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed yet. We know you can do better. But the question is, would you want to deal with the hassle of having to explain that aspect of it or aren't there enough other good football players that you can look elsewhere i just know that i had had conversations years ago with mike bellotti at oregon yeah about rodney woods defensive back who was involved peripherally with a murder and rodney was given a originally a uh, a misdemeanor conviction on you know he had chased a kid down the street at a party they had jumped the kid they chased him down the street and then somebody else delivered the blow that killed the kid. Mm-hmm. Um, Rodney was involved in that. I went to uh, went to uh, the city where that happened and re- talked to the mom, talked to the people who were there, reported on it. I was really uncomfortable with it all along. And Rodney ended up graduating from college at Oregon and mm-hmm. became a social worker. And there was a, you know, there was a, there was a beneficial ending sure. to Rodney Woods getting a scholarship. Richie Incognito, at Nebraska, had thrown a classmate through a wall and had repeated incidents. Richie played in the NFL. Mike Bellotti took him, too. Mm-hmm. Kept him on a short lease, and mm-hmm. when Incognito broke one of the very first rules, kicked him off the team almost immediately. It was very, very uh, brief yeah. uh, dalliance with R- Richie Incognito at Oregon. So I think you take kids who have some baggage you can live with. Mm-hmm. And I can live with, kid did a dumb thing at 16, nobody died, it was really, could have been really bad, he's learned his lesson, he's remorseful, you know, he's learned from it and is not going to make another stupid mistake like that. But I need to know that and I need to have that conversation with the kid. Mm -hmm. But I can live with that. Because part of, you know, we talk about the prison system and part of the goal is, like, you want people who go away not just to go away. Yeah. You want them to go away and improve themselves. And if they are released one day, come out of prison better, reformed. You know, not not likely to commit another crime, right? Right? <laughs> that's In the theory. I- that's the ideal. Okay. Yeah. So why why do we do that with prisoners but we don't do that with like a teenager who did something stupid? Like, you know, I would like for that kid to come out of his adolescence and this experience better for it. And in a position where he's really not going to be, he's going to be a leader moving mm-hmm. forward. He's going to be, but I need to know that. Like, I, I did not talk to Gus the Bus Cordova. Mm-hmm. I talked to his mom. Right. I talked to his stepdad. And 
I talked to the mother of the kid who had the peanut allergy, and I can tell you, she's terrified. Mm-hmm. She's scared. Yeah, I mean, I can empathize with her. Like, you know, thank God our kids don't have those kind of allergies. But um, I can imagine for people who are in that situation how scary it can be. It was just a stupid thing to go and put a peanut in that kid's locker. And then later he had a second thought about it, but maybe should have gone further. Maybe should have gone to the coach and said, hey, we did this. And can we clean that locker out? Mm -hmm. Like maybe go one step further. But I actually think if the two moms, the two moms sat down at a restaurant, a Tex-Mex restaurant, and they (laughs) kind of cleared the air right after the incident happened. Mm -hmm. And they left kind of on the same page. But where it broke down was the mother of the kid with the peanut allergy really wanted the school district to do something like expel or suspend Gus. And they didn't. And they did nothing. They said, this is a co-curricular issue. It happened at football. It was on a school off day that the peanut was planted. It was, this is, uh, you know. And so the idea is that football is running Lake Travis High School. And people who know Central Texas football know that Lake Travis is a big-time school. Mm -hmm. So when she didn't get, like, a punitive action from the school. Right. She got kind of dug in, mm-hmm. as a mom might do. Mama Bear does that. Yeah. If the, like, the tuba player in the band had done this, you know, would there have been a suspension? Right. That's the question. Did he only not get the suspension because he's like a star? On he the has 44 team? scholarship offers. Yeah. So, you know, that's the question. And so, you know, maybe the, the solution is the two moms sitting back down and going, hey, what kind of penalty outside of school would you think solve this in your eyes you know does gus need to be grounded for two months does he need to do community service does he need to work at a medical office that you know deals with allergies because you know what is it in your eyes because the school is not going to suspend him Mm -hmm. they're not going to expel him what is it in your eyes because i feel like the issue really is with the mom in the school yeah it's not the two kids but Mm -hmm. the kids are caught in the middle of this it's odd to me that the school didn't intervene that they were like hands yeah. off. Hmm. No, this well, happened on campus, but it was during off hours. District so. attorney says the same thing, though. The district attorney said, no, it's not a criminal act. School says, you know, they're probably looking at the harm. What is the harm? Mm-hmm. Kid got a rash. Right. He played in a football game. And they're going, what's the big deal? But for people who have allergies, I would love to hear from you whether you, what, what would you be comfortable? I guess here's the question. If you're an Oregon State fan, if you're an Oregon fan, the story of Gus the Bus Cordova. He put a peanut or two or a handful, depending on who you ask, into the locker of the other kid. Subsequently had second thoughts about it, cleaned it out. Kid had a mild rash reaction on his forearm. And uh, football program suspended Gus for two games, made him run. Uh, school is saying we're not doing anything. The mother of the kid with the uh, peanut allergy is she's upset still. I asked her. I said, "What do you want? You want to ruin his life? What's the, like? <laughs> just tell me what you want." She said, "I don't. I'm working on forgiveness." But she said, "I wanted the school to do something. I don't think he's learned his lesson." Now she alleges that Gus has continued to make comments at school and harass and bully her son. School investigated that and said no bullying. But it kind of ended with by asking the kid with the peanut allergy, are you afraid of Gus? And he said, no, I'm not afraid of him. And they said, well, then that doesn't uh, it doesn't arise to bullying. So we have a little bit of a messy situation. Mm-hmm. I would like our listeners to help sort it out. Would you want Gus Cordova on your football team? 503-417-7575. 
You tell me. Gus Cordova, four-star defensive end, Lake Travis High School in Texas. Wrote about him over the weekend. Are you comfortable with your school recruiting the kid? He was involved in an incident where he and another teammate placed some peanuts in the locker of a kid who had a peanut allergy. He did not believe it was a serious thing, they say. They later apologized to the kid. They removed the peanuts from his locker. He had a slight rash on his forearm from the residue that was left behind. Um, University of Texas, there's some reports out there saying that they have backed off recruiting him. He has 44 scholarship offers. Would you want him on your team? 503-417-7575. Let's go to Jim in Beaverton. Jim, welcome to the conversation. Yes, how you doing? Doing well. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, the hard part is trying to be judge and jury um, on all these uh, situations. And it's like, you know, Oregon had the two basketball players that I think did inappropriate things and I think ultimately were uh, sent off the team. Um, the kid, a uh, young boy at uh, Oregon State playing baseball, did a uh, inappropriate thing as a young boy. Again, uh, altered his life, and you wrote pretty uh, – wrote and communicated pretty strong on it. Um, so it's hard to play uh, judge and jury when it gets to these things. Um, yes, peanut allergies, one could say, hey, it's a small thing. It didn't affect him. What if it did kill him? Where does where do you go then? I well, then there's, a, then, there's, then, he's, then there's a manslaughter or attempted murder. Or there, there's a serious criminal charge in that case, yes. Yep. So it's, it's, it's hard to say when something unfortunate something fortunate unfortunately happened um it's a whole different story when something unfortunate really goes dark and and goes unfortunate for kids yeah so it's hard to play judge and jury it it wasn't for me on luke heimlich that you brought up because of the severity of the the crime and it was a crime he was convicted of and so that one to me crosses a line where you go eh, you know this is not what we're about as a university we're not putting them in a uniform and out on the field not happening when it comes to uh, sex abuse and a conviction but in this case the district attorney in Lake Travis is saying no charges and the school is saying no punishment now I don't agree totally with all of that the no punishment part from the school but the football program said two-game suspension, we're going to have him run. No harm, no foul, so to speak, but we take this seriously. That was a lousy thing to do as a teammate. It was a bad teammate. The reality, though, is that you could go up and down every college roster in the Power Five conference, and you could find kids with misdemeanors, stupid decisions, bad things that they did, lousy judgment, and we could sit here and go, you don't want that kid. Oh, you don't want that kid. But you have to, as a football program, decide what the culture of your locker room is going to be about. And there are going to be some kids in that locker room where you go, hey, we made a bet on him in spite of some bad judgment and some bad behavior. To me, I feel like there's a leadership issue here at the high school level where like, the principal could have got in the same room with both parents and probably – hash this out in a way that worked for everybody because you know peanut allergies that's a serious thing man like it, there could have been a death there and i understand as i spoke to the mother on friday night the mother of carter Mannion's mom and i she was you know saying like you know 
can't control every environment your kid's in. And we've gone through this through elementary school and worried about peanuts in the classroom and friends having peanuts and somebody pulling out a granola bar. And, you know, you arm your kid with an EpiPen. And, gosh, it's got to be a scary thing for a parent who has a child with an allergy. That's that's serious stuff. But in the end, I also am looking over at the other kid going, okay, really stupid. He's apologized. He's been punished. Um, I'm not sure what more you can do. Now, I have a little bit of an update here because I am told today that Carter Manon, the kid with a peanut allergy, has transferred schools. He is leaving Lake Travis High School, and he's going somewhere else. And so I have to think that, um, you know, there are just some bridges that were burned to the point of no return. Stephen, would you be okay with your school recruiting Gus the Bus Cordova? I think that I would um, because at that point I'd have to think that the coaching staff and the recruiters did their due diligence and, they, you know, they talked to the kid and he did seem remorseful um, because you, you were right on this is that, especially in college sports or professional sports, like these, there's a lot of guys on these teams that have done way worse things, and they get second chances. So it started as a joke. It wasn't a real funny joke at all, and I think that's the problem. Some people think it's funny, and it's not, obviously, and he should be suspended. He should be punished for it, but I do think that he deserves a second chance, and I think if he if he's being recruited by certain schools, and I'm a fan of that school, I would have to imagine the coaching staff is okay with this kid and thinks that he has learned from his mistakes. And then I do think um, it should be – you know, basically one and one, you're done. If you make a mistake on this team on that on that campus, you're off the team. And I think that's what I would be really a fan of. But I I do think that he deserves a second chance. Uh, I, I think most people deserve that second chance that they get. But if he ruins that second chance, well, then then you're gone and you don't get to play anymore. But uh, yeah. it's one of those things where I, it's lucky that nothing bad happened because if something bad had happened, then yeah, then maybe he doesn't get to play because he might be you know in way worse trouble. But for what happened, I think he does deserve that second chance. Yeah, it reminds me, too, like a lot of times, you know, people will have these minor disagreements and disputes that, that, ra- that you know, raise into so much more and they balloon into so much more because people don't simply sit around and hash out the details and have a conversation. You know, like we this came up earlier in the show that, you know, sometimes just talking about an issue that you're having with a neighbor is better than videotaping them putting it on social media, calling the city to complain and uh, issue a citation for them on violation of code, better than threatening litigation or actually filing litigation before you've had a conversation with your neighbor. Um, You know, I was joking one time about, you know, I had a neighbor who we had a disagreement over the property line and we had a disagreement over where the fence should be or shouldn't be and i called a surveyor out just cuz i didn't want to cause any trouble and i surveyor looked at it and the surveyor said to me he goes well, tell me what's going on here and i said well the neighbor lady you know i put in a fence and the neighbor lady says that the fence is on the line and it should be on my side of the line and he said the fence is actually your fence is in a good position and he said but the bigger thing is He said, you know, I've seen this kind of stuff blow up. He said, just go have a conversation with her and talk to her about what it's really about. And the truth was, the bigger issue was she was just concerned that, you know, I had put a fence in without talking with her about it. And, And in the end, she was, you know, trying to raise a stink over it because of her discomfort with it. And as we talked about it, it ended up being nothing. 
Like the, it, there were no bad feelings. There was no, you know, and it, and literally, I was about to pay for this guy to do a survey report, and here's where the line is, and here, and the truth is, it it just got settled by having a conversation. So I kind of think if we could have gone back and got the moms in the room, and could have got the sons in the room, and really had a conversation with the sons in particular, and said, okay, how do we turn this into a win? How do we edu- educate the rest of the school about peanut allergies? You know, how, can we? You, can we get it? Can we get bring someone in to talk to the whole school about it? Can we uh, turn this into a positive? Can you do com- community service and work with you know uh, some kind of uh, pro? Let's promote uh, you know uh, let's learn more about allergies and promote you know awareness um, and keep kids safe. Like let's turn this into a win. And instead, you've got two kids who are teammates that in the end didn't end up being teammates. Apparently, as of today. All right, leave it here. Punch it audio coming up. We've arrived at the point of the show where Punch It Audio is going to uh, take over. We've got great sound, including Charles Barkley. Buckle up. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Charles Barkley talking about Adam Silver's league. Some problems with the game coming out of the NBA All-Star Weekend, but Barkley says it extends to the rest of the product. Punch it. Well, I think you have to be concerned, uh, as everybody has to be concerned, because the one thing you can't do is alienate your fans. That's the one thing you can't do, because the fans make everything go. You know, they buy our products, they watch our sport, and once you piss them off, that's going to be some repercussions. You know... Fans gonna be saying, "Wait a minute, this guy's making fifty million dollars a year, and he can rest on some nights. He don't want to play basketball." Like I say, the most games you're gonna play in a week is four. I think most people, like I say, yeah, I like I say, I'm pretty sure everybody don't want to go to work all the time. Right. But if you're gonna make fifty, sixty million dollars a year and just say, "Hey, you know what? I'm only gonna play two out of three, three out of four. At some point, the fan going to be saying, wait a minute, you're charging me this much for tickets. Why in the world should I care if they don't care? It, that's part of the problem. Barkley's heading on it. The fact that players aren't playing in all of the games, and yet fans are at the end of the meal getting a, a bill that includes uh, prime rib, and it, it didn't include LeBron playing, or it didn't include um, you know, Giannis playing, or Damian Lillard sat out, or... Uh, Nikola Jokic didn't play, and in the end, uh, fans are left a little bit jilted by that. I think there's a bigger problem, though, with the NBA product. I was looking at the stats today, points per 100 possessions. NBA teams are averaging 115.4 points per 100 possessions. It will break the all-time scoring record in NBA history, a record that was set last season which broke the record set the season before. And in fact, if you go back and look at points per 100 possessions in NBA history, what you see is an escalation that started in the late to mid-1990s that has gone beyond 100 points to 101, to 103, to 105, 107. I, I think there's less defense being played. 
The rules are geared towards offensive production. Therefore, players in the league, what do they do? They Do they get salary for playing a good defensive possession or averaging another point and another assist? No, they players have figured it out. And so the emphasis on the game today, very much like the All-Star game, which becomes kind of a over-the-top exaggeration of what the you know the NBA product is. It's all about offense. It's not about defense. You can score 211 points and shoot only two free throws, and nobody seems to really care until it gets to crunch time or a big late-season game or the playoffs. And so I think there's just a general developing brand issue that the NBA is facing. Part of it is... The players don't play in all the games. They're, it's load management. They don't care. And the rest of it is the product in general is slowly deteriorating to the point where I'm kind of wondering if they add two expansion teams. Like, we, we used to be able to say, hey, that's watered down the talent. I think the talent's kind of watered down at this point. Steven, what do you see with the NBA product? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is the perception that the players don't care, like Barkley said, and I and that is the problem because stuff has been so priced out of just normal people's price ranges that they, if they're going to fork over money, they want to just see people care and people try and you know have a direction for the team if their team's not very good. And I think that's the problem right now is a lot of times the NBA players don't necessarily act like they're putting out the best effort or they act like they don't care because maybe the game's too easy for them or maybe they really just don't care. And that's the biggest problem right now. I, I don't know how it get fi- how it gets fixed either. Like they tried to put the sixty five game rule in there to manipulate all NBA teams and MVP. We'll see if that works down the road. But it has to be one of those things where it's just the players have to show more passion, show more emotion, and it really they treat it like a job, which is what it is. But the fans don't want to see that. The fans want to be entertained. The fans want to see it that way. So I just I really don't know what the solution is going to be for the players going down the road like they're gonna have to care more but they keep getting paid more and more money why why should they or why would they right you're you're sort of you know the the culture of the league and the brand of the league and the the quality of the product is is all perpetuated by what motivates the players and if the players are not given some motivation here by the league or their teams or uh you know the fans i do think fans are falling out of love with the game and i and it was just a few years ago where i felt like the nba was on the rise and now i'm looking at it going gosh they kind of peaked and plateaued and now are coming back down again uh john shire he is uh the coach at duke talking about the post game got a duke basketball player who got hurt punching disappointed we lost uh but look for me it's i'm more concerned about the the well-being of our guys you know flip sprains his ankle when are we going to ban court storming like, when are we going to ban that? Like, how many times does a player have to get into something where they get punched or they get pushed or they get taunted right in their face? And it, it's a dangerous thing. And I don't want that to take away from the game that Wake played. Because Wake played a big-time game. Salas was as good as could be today. And, and hats off to them. But you look around the country and Caitlin Clark, something happens. And now Flip. I don't know what his status is going to be. He sprains his ankle. And it's one thing, like when I played, at least it was 10 seconds in the court. You know, you would storm the court. Now it's the buzzer doesn't even go off, and they're they're running on the floor. And this has happened to us a bunch this year. 
happened to them on Saturday. Wake Forest, two-and-a-half-point favorite at home, won the game. Fans stormed the court. Not sure you should be storming the court when you're favored by two-and-a-half, but, um, you know, I get it. It's Duke. I also think Jim Boheim talked about, you know, former Syracuse coach, talked about the potential for heading off these court stormings. Is it realistic to think that you can keep fans off the court? Punch it. Well, you put 100, 200 police officers there, you could do it. But, you know, I mean, I'm very sympathetic. I hope Kyle, I love Kyle Filipowski. I hope he's all right. I really do. But in all the years of all the court stormings I've seen, and, you know, I'm kind of old, so it's probably a couple hundred, right? I've never seen anybody get hurt. I mean, that's the first thing everybody's talked about since this happened. Mm-hmm. Player safety, players this. And I've never seen anybody get hurt. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't get hurt. There you go. Jim Beheim talking about the idea that he's never seen it happen. Does, now does it's all happen- take yeah. was one, though? Does it only have to take one time and then we need to I, realize that this needs to be changed? Is Filipowski even hurt? Do we know? But, I, haven't, like, I haven't really seen an update yet. It, I, you know, no one will say it, but I, you know, he's saying he uh, was better today. Are we talking about guy almost got hurt, or are we talking about guy got hurt? I, I'm just asking. I, and if he's hurt, I want to know that he's hurt, and I feel bad for him. He didn't deserve that. But I also just think, you know, Beheim says it there. He says, in all his years. He's never seen an injury. I think you got to keep the fans off the court until the teams, the players, have a chance to get to the bench. No no player should be caught in the middle of that. It's happened now in a Big Ten women's game. It's happened in a ACC men's game. I, I just think that's part of your job when you're the home arena. And I'm not saying you need to ban the court stormings. But I'm saying you need to ensure that players and coaches can get safely to the locker room. Officials, too. It seems easier when you know Duke's on the schedule, like, hey, maybe we need to beef up security here. Or when you got a good team coming in. Because I, I believe there's. Yes. Like, you know, Duke gets court stormed every time. Like, that's just what it's going to be. They got to be more prepared. When you're playing, you know, Clemson, you're not going to get a court storm. But when you're playing Duke, yeah, yeah get ready for it. And, and, and Jay Billis raised the idea that, you know, Happens at the NCAA tournament. I've never seen it happen in an NCAA tournament game because those sites are not usually laden with a bunch of students and fans who would storm the court. I've never seen that happen at an NCAA tournament game. All you have at a tournament game are a bunch of band members from the school. They're not going on the court. And, you know, so I think this happens in the ACC for big games or the Big 12 at big games, occasionally in the Big 10 now with with Caitlin Clark. But I don't want to see somebody get hurt. I just think, can we find a middle ground where you delay the students getting to the court enough so that players have a chance to get out of the way? Shannon Sharp talking about the new offensive coordinator at UCLA, Eric Bieniemy, thinks it's a mistake for Bieniemy to take the job. Punch it. They were already holding against him that he had Patrick Mahomes, and for a long part, he had Travis Kelsey, he had uh, uh, Tyreek, and so they were already holding that against him. So what happens when you go outside of the purview of Andy Reid and you don't have a Patrick Mahomes and you don't have that? People are gonna say, "See, I told you, it was the offense; it wasn't his system." And now he goes back to college, and I get it—you're OC, 
bro, you in college, you're not the head coach. Exactly. You're not the head coach. If he's the head coach, Stephen A., uh, no problem. No problem whatsoever because we see offensive coordinators right. in the NFL get head coaching jobs in college, and there's no problem. But you're going to leave the NFL and go back to college? Right. You should have just stayed where you were, bro. Well, I, maybe Eric Bieniemy didn't like what was happening in the NFL. Didn't like working there. Didn't think he'd get a, get a fair shake there. Maybe he's looking at college and thinking, you know what? Uh, I got a better opportunity. I can live in L.A. And I can have a better life, and I can prove to people that I can call plays. I don't know. I want to see what happens with this, but uh, I think it's an interesting move from a career standpoint. But look at what Chip Kelly did. Bald face truth. Not here for a long time. Just a good time.